0: Hi listeners, Ross here. Just a quick content warning up front. In the following episode, I speak with a filmmaker about his recent project looking at marriage and relationships. There's a lot of discussion about personality traits phrased in the language of masculine versus feminine attributes. While there is some context in the conversation about how these traditional categories don't always map to specific gender or biological sex, it's understandable that these broad terms carry a lot of weight and baggage and expectations for a lot of people. Feel free to skip this one if that sounds like an uncomfortable conversation. Please know that I am not a relationship expert, neither of us are therapists or researchers, and be appropriately critical. Otherwise, please enjoy, and I hope you find some helpful ideas you can use in your own relationships. Hello, and welcome to Oh No, Ross and Carrie, the show where we don't just report on fringe science, spirituality, and claims of the paranormal, but take part ourselves. Yep, when they make the claims, we show up so you don't have to. (laughs) I'm Ross Blotcher. Oh, I'm both people today. We don't have Carrie
1: with us. Can't you just steal it from last week and then put her part in?
0: I guess so. Yeah, we could just keep borrowing (laughs) that audio. The other person you are hearing right now is none other than Roger Nygaard.
1: Yeah, people are panicking right now. Where's Carrie? Yeah,
0: I'm I'm a little panicked. I'm sorry, everybody. you know, she's (laughs) done a few episodes without me. I've done some solo ones before too. So I guess
1: the vacations are due for everybody. There's precedent
0: for this. Actually, this is relevant to our conversation today. Carrie is celebrating her anniversary. With Drew, her intended, uh, and we're going to be talking about uh, related topics. We, we, I say we, royal we. We are here with Roger Nygard today, who you may remember if you've listened to the entire show. You were the guest for our eighth episode,
1: eighth episode ever. Wow! If anybody's listening and has listened to every show since then, you deserve a medal.
0: Yeah, because that's people- a lot of shows. People have, and they deserve medals.
1: (laughs) Yeah, or at least a merit badge, a ribbon.
0: Yeah, that was back, I think, in 2011 when we started. And we were talking to you then about The Nature of Existence, a documentary that you had created at that time. You were exploring the depths of why we're here, all these deep questions. What was it, 84, 83? There were a lot of questions.
1: Yeah, I had somewhere above 80 to 90 questions that I asked everybody, all my interview subjects, and squeezed it all into one documentary called The Nature of Existence. My core question, though, above all those sub-questions was, why do we exist? Yes. What is our purpose? Why are we here? What are we supposed to do? Big topic. And I set out to solve it.
0: And you did. The
1: age-old existentialist question. (laughs) Philosophers have been wrestling with it for centuries, and I went out and solved it. You didn't give
0: away the answer on that episode, so you still have to go watch that documentary if you want to know the answer. But It's
1: very Socratic- in that yeah. you the I, I the, what I try to do is lead the viewer in a direction so you can make your own decision or come to a realization on your own without me preaching to you. Here's the answer.
0: Well, that's smart because and, and I think you were right to resist just you know giving it on a silver platter because it doesn't work that way.
1: However, when I made my next documentary that yes. we may talk about today, the yeah. truth about marriage, at the end, I just stood up and said, "Okay, here's the answer." In case you missed it, <laughs> stop everything. Here it is.
0: You did. Okay, so it's an 82-minute documentary, The Truth About <laughs> Marriage, and you do. You solve it. You talk to lots of experts and uh, and a lot of couples. I'm trying to think of couples as the correct collective term. Yeah, couples, but there, there's some complicated yeah. dynamics because not everybody's relationship is the same.
1: That's not a pejorative yet.
0: Uh, but at the end of the documentary, yes, you do solve it, exactly what the truth is about marriage.
1: I didn't know the answer when I set out, and I, I just I, I become obsessed with what I'm doing wrong. What, why? why i'm such a failure
0: hold on you're leading me into interesting conversation (laughs) and i haven't finished introducing you yet we should also say by the way on that episode uh when we talked to you last i realized that was the first time that carrie did the name swap she loves this every now and then she decides to claim that she is ross blotcher and i am thus forced by process of elimination to declare myself as carrie poppy that was the first time she did it so there you go You're, you're part of uh a tradition. And now I think this will be episode 250. Criminy. So, yeah. Podcasting. You have to keep for putting Pete's them out. sake. Which means we've we've had all kinds of crazy adventures since we talked to you last. Heavens to Betsy. Which you've heard about, We know, we've kept you we've kept you up to date. Oh,
1: I've listened. I have not listened to all 250, but I've done my share.
0: I won't make a medal for you, but I'm <laughs> impressed.
1: I really enjoyed though. I mean, when you guys dig into something like Scientology and you have a whole run of confrontations. Yes. Once you do the first one, you have to listen to the rest. Like, where is this going?
0: <laughs> oh, good. Okay, that's we're hoping to get you on the hook. Speaking of Scientology, I have a goldenrod sheet here with some questions from Carrie for you.
1: The so. aforementioned
0: Carrie Poppy. The aforementioned, that's right, who is here with us in spirit, but is physically with Drew, celebrating. I should also mention that you've directed many other projects. People know you for Trekkies. My
1: first documentary
0: about Star Trek fans. Delved into the world of Star Trek fans. Everyone wants to understand that better.
1: There's a two. There's a Trekkies 2. Trekkies 1 and Trekkies 2. That's where I I cut my teeth on documentary filmmaking. I didn't realize
0: until just a couple days ago that you also directed Six Days in Roswell.
1: I produced and edited that film, and it's about Roswell, as you may have gathered from the title. We went to Roswell, New Mexico in nineteen. 1997, which was the 50th anniversary of the alleged crash of an alien spaceship in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947, Yes, when they had their first gigantic celebration where the town went alien mad, insane alien. You could get everything from alien beef jerky to alien pencils to alien beer. They've got museums there. And we were there to document it. And all the experts came there, all the ufologists. Yeah, you talked to Stanton
0: Friedman. And right, right. Who we talked about on our show. We met him. We didn't have him on the show.
1: That uh, film's coming out again this year, by the way. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Two of my films are being re-released that I've restored. Six Days in Roswell and Suckers.
0: Oh, yeah. Suckers about car salesmen. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I need to watch both of those. And I may have to talk to you more about... You're
1: going to love it. The
0: Roswell film. Absolutely. When my son and I went on a cross-country field trip, we stopped in Roswell, went to the museum. Oh, so you
1: know how yep. amazing oh, that oh place yeah. is. Oh yeah, we
0: picked up a little hitchhiker that rode along with us in the car. The
1: place is crazy. It's yeah. great. It's wonderful. And, and then every July 4th weekend, they, that's when the celebration is. And what better place is there to go see a July 4th celebration than Roswell, New Mexico?
0: Absolutely. Just to give some more of your bona fides, uh, you've also directed an episode of The Office. You've that is correct. you The Bernie Mac Show. Yes. Uh, you've edited for Grey's Anatomy, The League, Who's America, Veep. Curb your enthusiasm.
1: All the above. Guilty. Pretty, pretty, pretty good. That's right.
0: <laughs> yeah. So there you go. Uh, uh, Roger Nygaard, a very talented filmmaker and editor. We're very happy to have you back. I'm very. Ha- I'm gonna. I'm gonna do that the whole time. I'm gonna say we. I speak for Carrie. She's here. Whether I mean, she's always gonna be present. Absolutely. But some people might think the the topic of marriage a little. Little set aside from what we normally talk about on the show, though very much, I would say, connected because so many religions and philosophies really touch upon how you organize your life. And they have strictures and recommendations on how you are supposed to handle your relationship life.
1: Let me try to draw an even closer parallel with what I do and what you do.
0: Yeah. Okay. What is Ono all about? Uh, Firsthand experience of Ideas outside of the mainstream.
1: And you're essentially debunking things, right? You're yeah,
0: I mean finding the truth behind... I would say we look into topics that we expect there's a good chance of bunk to be found.
1: I do the exact same thing. Yeah. I find a topic where I, I see a, an immense amount of bullshit of some kind, but I know within that smoke screen, there's got to be a nugget of truth and I'm going to reach through and I'm going to find it. Whether yes. it's with respect to our aliens coming here, yeah. what's up with Star Trek fans, <laughs> why am I here and what am I supposed to do about it? And then in the current one, the truth about marriage, what set me off was thinking, we all know the statistics, 50% of marriages, they, they end, they fail, right? Yeah. If the definition of failure is, they end, yeah. Okay. If that's the case, let me, let's me let assume I'm, I'm a car salesman, right. having made a film about car salesmen called Suckers. I can tell you a lot about them. If you came to me and said, I want to buy your product. And I said, you're going to love it. I've got the best product there is. Everyone's getting it. It's making everybody happy. Your life can't work without it. You would say, I've got to have one of these things. Yeah, sure. And then if you were to ask me, well, what kind of a guarantee does it have? Why don't you go ahead and ask me? A-
0: tell me, car salesman. What, what kind of guarantee <laughs> does this amazing car have?
1: Nothing. In fact, what? half of them breakdown. <laughs> and the other half that keep going are going to take a lot of work for you to keep it going in a healthy form.
0: You're a bad car salesman. Well,
1: you'd something's wrong with this product.
0: Yeah, sure. Okay. And then you have to ask yourself, is this the natural order of things? Does this work for everybody?
1: Why? Yeah. Why is there such a, a, a terrible failure rate for marriage and relationships in general? And, and people are switching partners their whole life. And most people have more than one date, more than one person that they're with throughout right. their life, if we were truly monogamous as a species, we would all do what you did. Yeah. We would marry the first person <laughs> we meet and have sex with.
0: <laughs> right, right. that's what
1: monogamy is. But who, uh, how? You know, what percentage of people are like you?
0: <laughs> we, we, yeah, we were talking about this. So Roger didn't realize until he listened to our Soulmates episode, which also ties in well. We thought this was a good thematic connection to the truth about marriage. Uh, Because we were asking a lot of those questions about whether there is such a thing as a soulmate and the universe intends somebody for you. And, you know, that's who you need to find. And, you know, maybe a spiritual person can help you find them. So you found out from listening to that that I got married at 18 to my wife who was 19. We both went through a loss of faith and we had a child and all these things that normally would tear people apart. We're very lucky and it's very rare that we're 19 years into this. It's hard for me to recommend that for everyone, but I realize that I, as a hetero male, having successfully married at 18 and kept this this marriage going, I fall very much into that mold of what society wants us all to do. And there's a reason why society wants that. You know, I, I realize, A, that is very rare. And B, it's not for everybody.
1: So why? What's wrong? Are you the one who's right? Is everyone else wrong or right? You know, what's going on?
0: Yeah. Or do I just fall comfortably into a bell curve such that society doesn't hassle me?
1: So we're all different? So if we're all different, then obviously you can't apply a one-size-fits-all religion stricture on everybody Yeah, or a cultural behavior stricture on everybody if everybody has different needs. But as a species, our needs overlap because... All that mother nature cares about is if you're reproducing successfully. So all of these thoughts and feelings and emotions and cultural norms. That's
0: all incidental.
1: It's all to keep us busy, keep us occupied while we're reproducing
0: successfully. Before we had all of that societal oversight, it was just about passing genes into the next generation. You already started to answer this, but I only have three questions from Carrie on this goldenrod sheet. So I'm going to jump straight to number three because it addresses... What you are starting to tell us, which is, do you choose topics that you feel you can't wrap your head around, such as marriage, spirituality, rabid fandom, or are those things that you feel like you understand deeply and that's why they interest you?
1: No, absolutely. The things that are perplexing me and I, I can't figure out and are seem impossible to answer. The more difficult the question, the more interested I am in in chasing it.
0: And that's kind of a scary thing, and it's a a different sort of filmmaking. Well, I guess that really is normally the documentary approaches. You go in not really knowing exactly how it's going to end up.
1: That's my process, but what I have noticed is, I don't know what most, I I haven't done a survey, but a lot of documentaries are about zealots, Trying to advance an opinion, mm, lazy propaganda, Slap-dash. or I mean, they, their hearts are in the right place most of the time. You know, your your water is poisoned, right? Or your food source is bad, or climate change is. You have a point of view when you is, set out to support it. Yes, right. And you build a case for the jury, which and is the audience. It's
0: as good as the premise, right? But it might not be as honest as it could be if you set out with a questioning mind and a Socratic method.
1: Depending where you start the process, that's going to affect where it leads you. And for me, I need a question that is seemingly impossible mm-hmm. because it's got to hold my attention for two to seven years.
0: Yeah, that's a long slog. And <laughs> uh, this
1: last one took me seven years to get to the end to solve this marriage <laughs> perplexity. You've
0: been talking about it for a long time. In my mind, you know, when I think of confirmed bachelors in my life, I think, well, first of all, of James Bond. But secondly, I think of Roger Nygaard. Yeah. I mean, is that is that a
1: fair assessment? In, in many ways. As you were starting to ask... Stone cold killer... <laughs> Always on the side of good. Yeah. And not and lots yet of married. Gadgets. And, and, and a string of failed relationships.
0: I interacted with you once when you were working on this film at the wedding of our mutual friends, Alicia and Juan.
1: They were one of the couples I interviewed for the documentary. Right.
0: And they, they appeared briefly, but they weren't... Uh... Yeah.
1: Well, they didn't make the final cut. The reason is, well, I inter- actually interviewed several couples and followed several couples in order to do a longitudinal study where mm-hmm. I go to the wedding, meet them, interview them, and then check back three or five or seven years later to right. see what happened.
0: Well, Carrie and I were at this wedding. and well, I y- you're I an was, officiant. Yeah, I was engaged in this and I feel some sense of ownership. I'm very proud that the, I think it's eight <laughs> weddings now so far that I've officiated all of those marriages are, as far as I know, happy and intact.
1: I don't know a lot of officiants, maybe only seven or eight who paid the $7 and filled out the form on the internet.
0: <laughs> that's right. That's what I did. At some point, I'll have to become like a more official secular <laughs> officiant. But for right now, I'm a universal life minister.
1: Ultimately this particular couple didn't make the final cut because as I finished my first cut, which was two and a half hours long, they were still in it. Everybody was in it.
0: So you're and saying that Juan and Alicia are not interesting enough?
1: What happened is they're they're so normal and wonderful. They are and wonderful. Perfect and beautiful. And what holds an audience's attention are the more exceptional mm. couples, mm-hmm. the more unusual couples. So I've got a polyamorous couple. Yes. I've got this super bachelor who gets married. <laughs> that guy. Don Blanquito. Man, what a character. Cut to some Don Blanquito music right here. Okay. She
0: runs her fingers through my hair, now we watch a DVD. But my motherfucking homies keep on calling me. I wanna be single forever, but I don't wanna die alone.
1: That gives you an idea of who Don (laughs) Blanquito is, and another couple was a a gentleman who was a screenwriter that I've known for a long time who met this woman at a party at my house, and they got married. She sort of became a mail-order bride, essentially, from Eastern Europe.
0: That's what I assumed from the documentary was the case, because I thought, why is she with this guy, and... I don't know. It seems Why is
1: anybody with anybody, right?
0: You're right. That is we the put, deeper question.
1: We put the the lens of our own experience on everyone else, and we judge them. It's what we do, mm-hmm. because that's all we have, is our experience to evaluate the world and it, other people.
0: I'll say you had a slice of different parts of society, and I was doing my own little dose of judging as I was watching. <laughs> <laughs> but Good, because take... that's
1: I'm, I, it's designed for you to do that. And so by the time you get to the end, I... Think that your judgment is changing from your initial impression, where you're thinking yeah. this guy is insane, what a douchebag. To you know what? He's not so bad.
0: <laughs> he evolves a bit. He he turns a corner because yeah, he really does start out as what I would describe as a misogynist, just the way he's describing women. Um, but oh, yeah,
1: ultimate. We, he's the ultimate misogynist. But, he's an extreme misogynist. Yeah, I was I was trying to be I was trying to be
0: gracious, but you're right. That is uh, exactly it. And then but,
1: but I mean. That's common. You see you see it in uh, on Curb Your enthusiasm, <laughs> Leon Black. Is this is like Leon Black in real life.
0: I mean, that's another important theme in the documentary as well, is that we change over time. So our needs in our 20s might not match up with our needs in our 30s or 40s or beyond.
1: Chris Ryan says that in the documentary that you, if you're in a relationship with somebody or a marriage, you're not in a relationship. You're in a series of relationships with right. that person right. because you're both changing over time. So th- both of these variables shifting, it takes an, a, a very adept Or you got to either be really lucky Mm -hmm. or have good counseling or figure it out and put the intention into it to figure out how am I going to solve these problems that will come up continually as each of your needs change independent of each other.
0: So just to loop back to Alicia and Juan, you saw this beautiful wedding and this handsome officiant at this ceremony, and you thought, this is just too unattainable for everybody else. We need something more relatable.
1: <laughs> well, the wedding, you just never know. The, the wedding was the perfect setup. Yeah. I mean, all the weddings typically are setups for what's going to happen next. I'm always, I've always got this thought when I go to a wedding, are these guys going to make it? Mm-hmm. Because 50% don't. One of the psychologists I interviewed... Right, yeah, it's a coin flip. Bill Doherty said that... He calls it the myth of exceptionalism. Nobody getting married thinks, we're not going to make it. We're going to be one of the ones that make it.
0: Right, like everybody says, I'm an above-average driver.
1: 50% of them are wrong. (laughs) Right. And the other 50% are in for probably a very tough slog to get there.
0: Yeah, the lies we tell ourselves. Or or the way life changes on us, despite our best intentions.
1: So I didn't know where... Alicia and Juan were going to end up. And I checked back many years later, and I did an interview with them. Yeah, And they were doing great. There's no conflict, really. They're adopting children. I mean, their biggest conflict was... Wanting to have a baby, and and then she got pregnant finally, yes. uh, kind of unexpectedly, so and
0: adopted, and
1: and, and it was all happy account. endings and buttercups, and compared <laughs> to it the make other for couples, drama.
0: sure, yeah. Well, okay, well, I'm glad at least we aired that out. I, I remember though when we were talking to you at that wedding, you were asking a bunch of questions that was making me think, okay, he's trying to put together kind of the case against marriage, uh, but I don't think that's where you ended up necessarily.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I was grilling marriage. I put marriage yeah. in the hot seat because if, if a truth is strong, it can withstand any grilling. You don't have to defend a solid truth. I like that. A solid truth can stand on its own. That's right. why you will see a lot of religious preachers or people holding doctrines that need a lot of defense— having to work overtime to defend their position.
0: Right. It's the things that aren't backed up by direct evidence that you need to have weekly meetings to remind people about or that shrink from questioning. One of my favorite quotes from Thomas Jefferson was, Question with boldness even the existence of a god, for if there be one, he would far prefer the homage of reason than that of blindfolded fear. Which I really like, you know, that that says something in terms of just the the process of questioning. If your religion is such that it forces you not to ask questions, that itself should provoke a lot of question asking.
1: One of the physicists I interviewed in The Nature of Existence said, if somebody tells you they have the truth, you should check for your wallet. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Is it still in my pocket? (laughs) A scientist does not claim to have the truth. Right. A scientist will say, we are trying to get closer to truth, and the more data we collect, the closer we can get.
0: I was just talking about this with a friend this morning that uh, scientists are really bad at creating bumper sticker slogans because they're always using this provisional language and saying, well, to the best of our understanding right now, yada, da, 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 but other models may show this and it turns out for people in this condition, this may be more likely, but, and it always turns into this kind of soup of explanatory phrases and little... Probabilities of certainty.
1: Right. We believe this with a probability of certainty of this percent.
0: And it is those who have all the certainty who are the least informed and those who know the most who... They're going to
1: fuck you over. (laughs) Right. Yeah. At some point. The
0: the people who claim that kind of certainty. Absolutely. Trust no one. Indeed. Without the data. It's a good lesson. So you were saying that you yourself were kind of driven to this because you wanted to poke holes at marriage and see if it held up, uh, and that you yourself...
1: I'm not married, and why am... What's wrong with me? Why can't I pull it together? Why can't I get to the altar? I've tried. I, it was three times in my life where I was in love, and I was imagining myself with this person forever, oh, getting married, having okay. children, and then disaster.
0: One of the experts that you spoke to, you spoke to many authors and therapists and people from... A lot of marriage counselors. And, and one of them pointed out, and I thought this was a good observation, you know, if you have... A string of failed relationships, you know, at a certain point, you have to look inward and say, Wait, is it me? (laughs) um,
1: (laughs) Right. You can't write a book that says it's you. Exactly. Who's going to buy that book?
0: That's not the vision of self help most people are looking for.
1: No, they want to confirm it's somebody else. They want you to help them point the finger at someone else so they can feel better about themselves. Yes. But if you go in for real therapy, real counseling, that's where they teach you that the solution is to look inward to fix yourself, if you can improve yourself, your partner or people you meet are going to rise to your level. I did find some very easy things that anyone can do to improve any relationship. Yeah, There are some very simple things. It's like, why don't they teach us this in high school? Yeah, They teach us math and science and reading and oh. gym class, but there's no class on how to have a, a successful relationship. Yeah, The most important thing you'll ever do in your life is choose someone to spend your whole life with, and there's no guidance whatsoever. There are so many
0: things that people people say that about you know like why don't we have any classes on critical thinking say in school and we do really rely on parents to transmit so much information that is not evenly or successfully transmitted by parents to all children but so,
1: what we don't rely on parents to teach us trigonometry we don't or sex ed even now yeah well they're not qualified <laughs> to do it right right they're busy working at the meat factory as a lawyer, or they studied something else, but not these other things that we need to, to be yeah. well-rounded or adults. Or they're
0: afraid to talk about these things, honestly and objectively. Well, you, you brought me to Carrie question number one from the Golden Rod sheet. She is insistent. You dated me when I was 27 and you were 49. What were you thinking? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, what are we attracted to? What yeah. are men and women attracted to? You think about, okay, I like this person. Right. Why is that? Right. You feel, you have these feelings of attraction. I mean, Carrie, Before
0: you even speak to someone sometimes. I mean, let's
1: let's let's talk nice about Carrie. She's, yeah. she's pretty, uh-huh. she's smart, she's funny. Yeah. She's an amazing person. She's uh, engaging. She's going to listen to this and get a huge ego.
0: <laughs> All those things are true.
1: I mean, she had everything. And so when you feel, I like this person, mm-hmm. you want to get to know somebody. Well, why is that? The experts have answers. There is very specific things and they have data. That they have found from Match.com or the dating sites, for instance. Because if you look on the dating sites, people have these lists of things that they look for. Well, I want someone who's compassionate, who's good with kids, who is handsome, blah, 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 blah. Right. Well, what do they actually choose? They can look and see if they choose the things they say they're looking for. That's a
0: good point. That's what sociological experiments and questionnaires and observed behaviors can help us disentangle, which is our stated desires and our actual behavior.
1: Exactly. And Tai Tashiro, who is one of the psychologists and researchers I interviewed, he was the one who explained this to me. He said that what they found when they looked at the data on dating sites is that even though people had these lists of things, they all picked the same thing. Hmm. Looks and money. Those are the top two things. And for men, it was looks first, money second. Interesting. For women, it was the reverse. Money first, looks second. Oh. And money equal it's also resources, so there were,
0: providership. Uh, okay. Oh, I see. So money kind of lumps together some other considerations. Were there other things further down each of those Way lists? further
1: down, but those are the two things that matter the most. Well, the outsized. third thing is, how close are they to where I live? Proximity.
0: Right. Yeah. Maybe the perfect person for you is in Nigeria. Well, how practical is yeah, that? Not geographically
1: desirable.
0: Or chronologically, you know, that you can be separated from someone.
1: So what does it mean when you think someone looks hot, looks attractive?
0: So much of that is, uh, I would say, ineffable. Like, you know, you're either attracted to someone or you're not. And sometimes you would objectively think this person should be attractive to me, and for whatever reason...
1: Well, there's two things going on. One is that we all tend to agree what's physically attractive. They've done studies where they take all the attractive people in Japan and America and then showed them to people from both countries, and everybody ranked them basically the same. The hottest people in Japan are considered the hottest... And by, by people in America as well, and vice versa. Such as the seventy percent waist to hip ratio. Uh, that's the ideal ratio that men find most attractive in a woman. And in a man, it's ninety percent. The closer a man comes to waist that's ninety percent of hips, yeah, that's the ideal. Interesting form that and, that women look for in a man.
0: And yet, I, I hear about other kind of considerations that bake into that. Because then you would think theoretically, all of us would be pining for the supermodel of our chosen gender uh, which isn't necessarily the case and, and one thing I remember hearing early on that kind of clarified things for me was that we look for partners based on how they make us feel about ourselves Right. so I may look at somebody and think like well she's out of my league or she just doesn't make sense for me but I want someone who makes me feel important and makes me feel loved, makes me feel well, That's and why, comfortable.
1: That's why something like eHarmony Mm -hmm. is kind of a waste of time. Filling Mm. out 200-plus questions does nothing except find two people who are so desperate to find someone they're willing to torture themselves by filling out 200 questions. (laughs) Because you can't take any two profiles and predict who's going to connect based on the profiles until they're sitting face-to-face and they can gauge how that person makes them feel.
0: I don't think any surveys, even ones well-calibrated, would have necessarily brought my wife and I together.
1: Um, You obviously have... A chemical connection, mm-hmm. and you notice you found that early on, and you we're we're connected, we're attracted to people chemically. Mm-hmm. There's data; they've done studies. For example, there's a study called the T-shirt study. It was done by Klaus Wedekind, Oh, yeah, who's a Swiss uh, biologist, anthropologist, psychologist. W- and, where
0: you like kind of present somebody's shirt to somebody else and say, "Smell this."
1: Exactly. They had 40 shirts that men wore for a week, and then they had 40 some women, and they all smelled the shirts and ranked the shirts. By which ones they saw, thought smelled the most attractive. Yes, and then they looked for correlations. Well, why do they this person? Why does this person find this shirt more attractive than the other? And what they found correlating was immune systems. Hmm. It's called the MHC major histocompatibility complex. There is a, a hundred or so different immune system genes, and so we're all somewhere on that spectrum with different immune systems. And what you find most attractive is when someone is more dissimilar from you. Two people with the same immune system genes, that, that, uh, immune system genes will kicks not in be that sort of like incest
0: repulsion.
1: Well, because if you were to have a baby, the baby will have a better chance of surviving if the parents have very different immune systems to draw right from. You get
0: all these non-dominant alleles that then match up, and then you get uh, maybe diseases, inherited traits that you don't want.
1: And so when you kiss somebody, you go, wow, there was a spark there. And it's your body gauging chemically, among other things, whether you have matching complementary immune systems. Yeah. And if you don't, you're, you're going to go, "Yeah, oh, you know, he's attractive, but we kissed, but... Uh, it just was no spark.
0: It's amazing that experiment could show that because it's based on smell. And we think of pheromones. We did an episode on that. And humans have a very underdeveloped nasopharyngeal receptor, whatever it is that, you know, is supposed to smell pheromones in most mammals. But that does lead one to think that there's something to that. There's Our- enough
1: there for us to to get the information we need Yeah, to be an adaptive trait for reproduction. But it's all about why is Carrie so attractive, right? Yes, oh, that's right. We're still looping to, back to that. One of the questions that I asked a uh, writer named Matt Ridley, yeah, who who's wrote, wrote The Rational 10. Optimist and The Red Queen, he said that they did a study, there's always a study, where they asked people, what age is the most attractive to you. Who should you be dating? Hmm. And women generally pick someone about their own age, maybe a year or two younger, no matter how old they got. Okay. Men said 23, no matter whether they're 80 or 18.
0: Oh, wow. That was always the target. You're either looking up or you're looking back.
1: So why is that? The reason is because men are essentially fertile their entire life. They can father a child until the end. Hmm. Whereas women, they have a more narrow window of fertility. Obviously, once a woman hits menopause, she's no longer fertile. Yeah. And there's a peak fertility that they reach at a certain age when a woman is at her peak fertility, obviously. On average. Her attractiveness tends to coincide with that. Her ability to attract men coincides with her fertility. And what is fertility? It's health and youth.
0: The uh, evolutionary explanation seems pretty straightforward there.
1: That's why older men generally date younger women And the average worldwide, I think, is four years difference. Women are, on average, four years younger than men in relationships. Okay. Maybe it's two years in wealthier countries, and it's maybe six to seven years in poorer Uh, countries. Oh,
0: interesting. I love statistics and those kinds of insights that they can give us. My wife is a year older than I am, so...
1: Well, you started young, right? And you so you're you're evading these uh, particular right. At the time, we were
0: relatively so very close (laughs) to each other. You're both
1: fertile and ready to go, (laughs) and and uh, had a chemical connection. And so, worldwide, women are looking for, on average, and this you can't you know when you generalize, there's always exceptions. But on average, women are looking for providership because she's going to be pregnant at some point. And when when a woman is pregnant, she can't go out and work. She can't go out and hunt. She can't go out and forage. And so she needs someone who is going to bring her provisions. When talking about
0: this subject it's so easy to get into this language of traditional gender roles and...
1: Right, but uh, which tradition? 1950s? M- right. Or from 50,000 years ago? Well,
0: there's that, yeah. But there's kind of like this undercurrent of men are from Mars and women are from Venus sort of thinking. And, you know, men behave this way and women... On average, right. on average. So, so There's I think always exceptions. It's important to remember, right, every, every one of those statements, I think every statement we've made so far comes with exceptions. But well, you have
1: to generalize, too, if you're going to make predictions. We call this pattern of behaviors, one pattern of behaviors is called masculine, and another pattern of behaviors is called feminine. Right. We put the, a rubric, on, that, uh, an umbrella over both of those. Yeah. But I have both. Sometimes I'm in my feminine, and I have needs. Yeah. And sometimes I'm in my masculine, and I have masculine needs. And a, and a woman, similarly, she'll have masculine needs. For instance, when we, in the workplace, everybody's in a masculine mode. Yeah. So that's kind of what helps screw up passion, that's, for people when okay. they, after work, when they can't gear shift.
0: So you say masculine mode because you're referring to like getting ahead and making numbers and proving yourself yeah. and being heard. And, yeah. Okay. As
1: opposed to being emoting and communicating right. okay. and so, sharing and, other, I don't know, what do you want to call them, softer right. emotional right. versus logical, more hard-based pursuits, endeavors, feelings.
0: And I think in the same way that you're kind of asking all these questions of marriage, I think nowadays culture is is so intensely focused on asking questions of those assumptions about what is masculine and what is feminine. So I, I like what you do in the documentary is that you talk to so many different experts who have very differing opinions on things and you just kind of layer them next to each other and one person will say that very men are from Mars, women are from Venus kind of thing and then you directly then have someone saying something of oh, very different right after them and it does force you as the viewer to compare and contrast and realize oh, these can't both be exactly right
1: yeah I just want to know the truth I don't care who wins
0: uh-huh. men
1: don't have to win or women don't have to win I mean there's something that's actually happening objectively and I'm trying to understand what's going on so that I can fix it for myself right. and have a better relationship next time
0: so the answer for Carrie was that as she's just a, a good package yeah. And, uh, and and she <laughs> and she was willing to go out with you, so it worked out.
1: Yeah, well, it, you know, we had a lot in common culturally yeah. and philosophically, and we had a lot to talk about, and we still do. And so that's why we're still great friends.
0: Now everyone's going to want to go back and listen to that episode again, like, wait, they were dating? <laughs> and she did follow up with clarifications. She said, JK, mostly, I don't mean it like he was a predator or something. Just now I can't imagine dating someone that much younger than I am, even by percentage. So she's, yeah. she's well, falling into these kind of bell curves. We'd yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that uh, at, at her age now, she's not looking back and saying, I should be dating that
1: guy. Well, we have to separate questions because we, we often conflate things by saying you should or shouldn't date somebody like this versus you should or shouldn't be attracted to somebody like this. Yeah. You can't control what you're attracted to. It's built in. Right. You can control behavior. Yes. But you may, if your behavior is out of sync... With who you are as a species, you're, right. there's going to there be frustrations that have to be dealt with in some way or they're going to explode in some unexpected or unwanted way.
0: Right. Yeah. And we, we've talked about this on the show. Carrie and I recently, uh, she had brought up how there are people out there who have attraction to children and they don't want that attraction, but it's there. And they have to deal with it. You know, for the people who do struggle with that and manage to not act on it, that's noble. There's nowhere for them to go. Society just doesn't give them easy ways to deal with that.
1: It doesn't work, obviously. In our society we've made decisions about what is correct and incorrect behavior. And And we've drawn lines, like the age of 18, for the most part.
0: Yeah, those are good lines to have, and and that's a case where we can all kind of agree, like, yeah, you're right, that is a taboo for a reason, because there's consent involved, and you know, how old are you before you can consent?
1: I mean, there's an argument that a person under the age of 25 still isn't ready to make decisions. Right,
0: their prefrontal cortex is still developing. Ask the Insurance
1: companies—they know that.
0: So there we go. Carrie was 27, so her prefrontal cortex was fully
1: developed. Yeah, she was ready to go. <laughs> she knew what she was doing. In yeah. fact, I'm the aggrieved partner here. Oh
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, I don't—I don't know any details.
1: <laughs> no, it was uh, she's she's uh, she's the kind of person. There's nothing bad you can say about Carrie.
0: And everybody's still friends and everything. So uh, it, it was a teasing question, but uh, a very good answer.
1: But valid. Like I said when we started, there's nothing that's off the table. Excellent. And and if there was, how could I make a? Dime? documentary and ever approach the truth if I was afraid to look at something.
0: That has to be a, a constitutional thing for yourself.
1: It sucks. It's hard. It's not easy. It's easier to, to ignore things and to live right. in a delusional bubble.
0: Or to get easy, quick answers, you know, which which is very much related to, I think, the theme of our show is that aspects of, you know, pseudoscience and alternative medicine and religion are often organized around giving you answers for whatever questions are in your life. And usually there are those important ones about like, why am I here and who should I be with and how do I contribute and how do I live morally and all of those things. And so they offer these easy answers and sometimes they're more quotidian than that. Sometimes it's how do I lose weight? How do I look great? You know, and, and all these people are willing to make money off of selling you something that will give you a shortcut to that, you know, Hey, wear this belt and lose belly fat. Uh, but life's not like that. Life is hard. You have to work for these things.
1: We didn't have to ask those questions 200,000 years ago when we lived on the African savanna in small tribes. Mm-hmm. That's how we evolved. We evolved for that environment. That's what's normal for us. Living in a right. group of 150 or fewer where everybody shared everything. Right. We didn't have questions or worries about where am I going to get my next meal or who's going to take care of my baby if my husband dies. It's a collective Any one of these children could belong to anyone, and so everyone loves everyone. Everyone works together. They share everything. Chris Ryan argues that they shared shelter, food, sex. Everything was owned by everyone.
0: Right, in a sufficiently small group.
1: Yeah, it doesn't work now. That's why monogamy is the rule, because there's seven-plus billion people. And that kind of a situation no longer worked. And the dividing line was about six to 10,000 years ago with the discovery of agriculture.
0: And so now all of a sudden you need to keep people in one place so you can't be nomadic anymore. And, oh, shoot, now we need like a social structure. We have groups larger than, you know, like 125 or whatever our brains are kind of built to cope with.
1: Dunbar's number is about 105. 150- 44 gross we call it right 150 yeah yeah that's how many people we can keep track of emotionally and let's say someone new comes into our life that means someone has to go out
0: right it it is a zero sum game in that sense
1: that's what we're built for
0: and so then the idea was that marriage kind of entered the scene as a way to hold contracts and ensure you could pass along your property into the next generation
1: yes but a little before that what was happening was these no Mad stopped walking around gathering food and they stayed in one place and started to think, you know what, this is my land. Mm-hmm. These are my domesticated animals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is these are my children and my wife. And I want to make sure that I am leaving my possessions to my genetic offspring. Mm. The idea of propriety occurred to human beings. That was not a part of our existence before then when everything was shared in the collective. Yeah. So how do you do that? Because the man. Is out hunting. He's out working in the field. How can he be sure it's his child? A woman knows because it comes right out of her. Yeah. That's
0: her baby. One of the experts said something like 10% of children are not the offspring of their assumed father.
1: Genetically, when they did tests, that's what they discovered. That's yeah. wild. So if 10% of children are, quote, bastards, that means there's a lot of cheating going on to get to that 10% level. Yeah. There's a lot oh. of mate switching happening. Right,
0: because not every act ends in pregnancy.
1: So if you are this male figure in the society that's now evolving after the agricultural revolution where you want to make sure that your offspring are inheriting your goods and you're off working in the field, and so you can't practice what the biologists call mate guarding 24-7 <laughs> to make sure no one gets, quick gets, gets in there and impregnates your woman. Right. What evolved was the idea of marriage, which is a way to build a social fence around the sexual behavior of women. So when men are off working in the fields, they know this social fence now is, mm-hmm. has been erected around their their woman. Therefore, marriage was designed or invented to control women's sexual behavior, not men's. Because if you look in the Bible or the Old Testament or any religious text, you'll see that adultery is a sin against uh, women, not men.
0: Right. Because women
1: can get pregnant, men can't, so it's not that big of a sin.
0: And uh, the Jewish bloodline is calculated through, you know, your maternal line, because that's the one you can know for sure. Right,
1: because men are philanderers, and they'll take opportunities, and it's designed, it's built in. That's what they were doing when they lived on the African savanna. And it was natural. When when they found tribes—I mean— the, the scientific method is the, how you make a theory, and then you go and look for modern-day tribes that are still existing that way. And they've mm-hmm. found tribes in Mongolia, South America, etc., that still exist in this old-fashioned style. Some t- tribes, for example, when a couple would decide, we're going to become a couple, you could still be in this collective and, and have a special partner. Yeah. They would have a special night, the wedding, and... Part of the honor of that wedding for the bride was for all the men in the tribe to have sex with her on her special night. It was a great honor. Okay. And and the husband is very proud and he's beaming. All these men are having sex with his woman. And we put everything through the goggles of our modern experience, our modern culture. And it's hard not to judge other cultures. We tend to look at our culture. Well, this is normal because this is what I grew up with. Yeah. What they do in India or what they do in Pakistan or what they do in China or what they do in South America right? or wherever, that's weird.
0: And wh- where do you separate the cultural imperialism of that vantage point and the objective things that we can look at and say, okay, well, we have good reason to say that this is a line in the sand that we draw.
1: Well, we have to draw lines in order to maintain stability in society. But once again, Mother Nature doesn't care as long as you're successfully reproducing. That's the only metric.
0: And, and so much of society is, is pulling us away from just what evolution gave us, because people often combine evolutionary theory with social Darwinism and the idea that evolution dictates what we should and shouldn't do, which is not true. We have the ability to look at what evolution is gave us and how it brought us to the present and fight against that and say, you know, well, we have ethics now that tell us that this is not one size fits all or you don't enforce uh, women into uh, being progenitors of children, etc.
1: No, we're we're not trapped. We have frontal lobes. We have very powerful brains that allow us to reexamine our our environment and decide I'm going to do something different.
0: Well, thanks for that evolution.
1: (laughs) It's probably a mistake. And it's probably going to leave to the end of our species, or as they call it, the, the great filter. Have mm. you heard of that phrase? No. This is part of the Fermi paradox. Having made the six, my documentary Six Days in Roswell, studying are are aliens oh, yeah. coming here? Why, Why aren't are they, they here? Not here where are yeah. they? We've, we've been listening for decades, and there's not a peep coming from the sky. Right,
0: and it took us four and a half billion years to light up, essentially. So, yeah. where are all the civilizations that did it in three and a half?
1: They've had thirteen billion years to get started. Yeah, and it's so the problem, the theory that comes from that is there's something called the Great Filter that if a species becomes too intelligent, they ultimately self-destruct because mm. they become able to to invent the means of their own demise, and they can't help but push that button.
0: Okay, I've certainly heard that idea suggested, especially when we were in the midst of atomic fear.
1: Well, we're pushing the button right now. I mean, it's a slow, seems like a slow motion button, but we're spoiling our environment. Yeah, we're d- destroying slowly, destroying. Our habitat.
0: But you have to add that to Drake's equation, you know, when you're looking at habitable planets versus, you know, the number of stars and, you know, you're subdividing by all these factors. One of those factors is how many advanced civilizations self-destruct. And... A hundred percent, according to the Great Filter. Mm, okay. Well, that's... that's because... Worsen. But I can't argue against it right now. <laughs> Things what, aren't looking too great.
1: Well, yeah. We evolved on the African savanna to survive in that environment. Mm-hmm. And all of our behaviors that we had in that time period now, we still have within us. And many of them are adaptive and some of them are no longer adaptive. In fact, they're maladaptive for a, a culture that has nuclear power or has bioweapons. Right. Or the means of its own demise.
0: And, uh, and with every new birth, every blank slate new human emerges into the world with that same programming. It doesn't change much from generation to generation. So everything on top of that has to be all through nurture and society that we program people anew. All of that accumulation of, of culture, of advancement, all has to be encoded freshly with each new generation.
1: And if you look at the variations in that encoding, there are things like sociopaths, Right. Which are, what, 3 to 6% of the population?
0: Oh, I, I was uh, if, hearing and hoping smaller than that. Like, yeah, 2%, something like that.
1: If you know 20 people, one of them is a sociopath on average.
0: And everybody's immediately thinking, oh, yeah.
1: Why is that, though? But it was adaptive.
0: I, kn- I know sociopaths. It was
1: a good thing because if you had a sociopath who could become the leader of the tribe mm. and you be- get it, and you get into a conflict with a neighboring tribe whose leader is not a sociopath you have an advantage because that sociopath will lead you into battle Uh (laughs) in such a way, mercilessly, to win.
0: That's a successful strategy, at least when it's at a certain sustainable percentage of the population. If everybody is, things fall apart.
1: Yeah, it works at a small percentage. That's why it never goes above. It stays at at around that small percentage. And now sociopaths in charge of nuclear weapons or the economy or (laughs) whatever— can be a big problem. Make things go really
0: badly for the other 98% or whatever it is. Yeah.
1: You kind of want a sociopath though if you go in for surgery Mm. or uh, a pilot who's flying your airplane.
0: Someone whose emotions aren't getting into the operation of their skill.
1: Or your Wall Street advisor. (laughs) A successful Wall Street plan is not one that involves emotions. It involves following the plan. Mm
0: -hmm. Which leads me to question number two from Carrie. Define a double blind study. (laughs) Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, you've got to have two groups. Okay. One gets the real pill and one doesn't get the real pill. They get a placebo and yes. then you can compare the results and see if there is a statistical result.
0: That's a very good answer. <laughs> the reason we asked that is because Carrie did an interview recently with, with a medical intuitive, and she claimed to be like the most tested, the most verified of her ilk. And she kept mentioning all these double-blinded studies that she had been... <laughs> she didn't know what it was. That she'd been involved <laughs> with. She had no idea. She thought it meant uh, doing an experiment and then checking back later on what the results were.
1: Well, I love science, I have a voracious appetite for reading. I read every day, every night before I go to sleep. In making my documentary, The Truth About Marriage, I started out by reading a stack of books five feet tall. Yeah. The same thing with The Nature of Existence. I read every book I could get my hands on. And I'm no expert. I'm not a scientist. I don't have a PhD in these things. I'm just curious. I'm a guy with a lot of questions. And you know which questions to ask. Well, I've absorbed a lot and I go where my curiosity takes me. And I will be the first to admit if I don't know something and I don't know a lot. In fact, I'm just smart enough to know what an idiot I am.
0: <laughs> That's a healthy position. Well, you you pass. You you very well described a double-blind study.
1: Well, I happen to have read about that one thing. I mean, so I got one. Doesn't yeah. mean I'll get the next one.
0: <laughs> That's okay. There's no more questions here about the capital of North <laughs> oh, Dakota <darn>. or anything.
1: <laughs> Bismarck?
0: Hey, you got it. Perfect.
1: <laughs> well, I grew up in Minnesota.
0: <laughs> oh, so hey, okay. Close. Yeah, close enough.
1: What's the capital of Minnesota?
0: Let me think about this. because most people would want to say minneapolis yeah and they'd be wrong that's
1: not it wait let me think about this the twin cities what's the other one yeah st paul yes okay well done all right ross is way smarter than me people Uh, i would not
0: uh i would not venture (laughs) that um excellent well i'm impressed and our our listeners are impressed
1: now they know that they can take you
0: seriously
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah well don't take me too seriously because i am a goofball
0: Hello, this is Ross, interrupting myself and Roger. uh, First of all, let me clarify, there is a crucial additional component of double-blinded studies. Roger had the right setup. I was content that he got the idea, so I didn't press him to finish. But of course, randomization and placebo are just the first part of setting up a double-blinded experiment. Blinding is about making sure participants don't know which treatment they're receiving. And double-blinding is about making sure the experimenter also doesn't know which treatment is being given. This is important for reducing bias in the results. All clear? Okay. Anyway, I hope you're enjoying the conversation so far, but I wanted to tell you about websites. That's right. A dream is just a great idea that doesn't have a website yet. Make it a reality with Squarespace. You've heard of squarespace.com before. That's where you can create a beautiful website to blog or publish content, promote your physical or online business, announce an upcoming event or special project. There's so much you can do. And Squarespace gives you access to beautiful templates created by world-class designers, powerful e-commerce functionality, a new way to buy domains and choose from over 200 extensions, 24-7 award-winning customer support, there's so many things you can do with a website. So many ways to express yourself. Doesn't matter whether you're a photographer, a wedding professional, maybe you have a restaurant, maybe you sell instruments and gear. There's so many things you could make a website for, and you can try out all of the tools on squarespace.com. Start building your site before you make that commitment. Speaking of commitments, so check out squarespace.com. Oh no. For a free trial and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code OHNO to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And while I've got you here, let's talk about Rothy's. Have you heard about this company making stylish, sustainable shoes and bags made for life on the go? They're carefully crafted with eco-friendly materials like repurposed plastic water bottles and marine plastic. That's right. We're talking about Rothy's and not only do they make shoes, but now you can also order bags also made from reclaimed plastic. I know you've heard me talk about them before. My wife has a pair of Rothy's that she absolutely loves and wears all the time. They're one of the more popular models on rothys.com. They're called black solid or the point and they're good for every situation. Classy, but also casual. And I know Carrie loves her Rothy's as well. They're comfortable. They're machine washable. What more could you ask for in a shoe? Rothy's shoes are seamlessly knit with thread made from plastic water bottles. So they're ultra comfortable as soon as you slip them on. Rothy's has kept over 50 million single-use plastic bottles out of landfills and transformed them into their signature thread, which is then knit into beautiful, sustainable products. Another major bonus, Rothy's are fully machine washable. Every time they need a refresh, you can simply toss them in the washing machine. So check out all the amazing shoes and bags available right now at rothys.com slash oh no. That's rothys.com, R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash oh no. Style and sustainability meet to create your new favorites. Head to rothys.com slash oh no today. All right, back to Roger. So the, the documentary covers so many of these threads that we're talking about kind of the evolutionary history and trends over
1: time and those are of, the problems yeah I wanted to find out the problems yeah the first half of my book and the documentary is about here are the problems yep. now what do we do about it right right and we haven't
0: mentioned the book by the way the truth about marriage the truth about marriage is the, the truth
1: marriage.com if you want to go and find it go yeah. to the truth truthaboutmarriage.com and I have links to both of them
0: and it's a companion book because it's about companionship I wrote a book that's awesome good well, congratulations. for congratulations huh? yeah absolutely <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> is that your first book?
1: Yeah. And let me tell you, it is about 50 times harder than I ever thought it would be to write oh, a book. Oh, that's depressing. <laughs> it's a lot of work. Okay. <laughs> but I'm That's so, what I figured. I, I, was, I was compelled to do it because in making the documentary, I, I, I learned so much. Imagine going to 15 of the top psychologists, yeah. relationship psychologists in the world. And being able to ask them the questions that are bothering you most.
0: Yeah, privileged position.
1: And I came away with so much information. And because I brought my camera, there was no charge. Free therapy. Yeah. And so I benefited, and, and then the readers of the book, you will benefit. I coalesced what they taught me about what everything I was doing wrong. What do What are humans doing wrong in relationships? Whether you're married for how many years now? 19. 19 years, or you're about to get married. We're all making the same mistakes. Yeah. Some maybe less than others through trial and error, but we're all doing these dumb things that no one teaches us.
0: What are some of the the smart things that people can do?
1: Listen, be a better listener. That's number one. Men Mm. are horrible listeners. The masculine side, the logical side.
0: Again, we're talking about averages.
1: On average, and or when you are in your masculine or you're feminine, you have different needs or different, I like to call them relationship or emotional vitamins. If you want to improve your relationship, if you take one thing away from this podcast, listen up. Okay. I'm going to tell you seven years distilled down to one thing you can do. Yes. And it costs you nothing to try this. And I want to hear the results. Okay. Okay. Try this experiment, Ross. Yeah. Go home tonight for the next week and ask your wife, ask Kara, say to Kara, "Honey." How was your day? (laughs) And then shut up.
0: Let her tell me how her day was.
1: Don't try to fix it. Don't offer solutions. Don't interrupt. Just give her empathy. Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. That's wonderful. Tell me more. Right, yeah. For about 15 to 20 minutes. That's about what the feminine side needs per day and if we don't get it we're not satisfied
0: the feminine side no matter what gender you are right you, you need that yeah if,
1: but if you're i'm I primarily i'm primarily a masculine person mm. so most of the time i'm on the other side of the equation okay and my partner the ideal partner for me is a mostly feminine person whether you're gay straight or anywhere in between what the experts have told me is that the best union is a masculine with a feminine mm. or opposites. Mm-hmm. We're meant to complete each other, not duplicate each other.
0: That's interesting. In, in many regards, I would say in my relationship with Kara, I am the more feminine and she is the more masculine. Not in all respects, but as far as those traditional That's needs probably go.
1: why you mesh. You mesh yeah. well because you're a good match in in that masculine-feminine energy thing. So you need some listening Probably from her. Right, yeah. And I'm vice the one versa who needs to, to different listening. amounts.
0: I like musicals. <laughs> she but likes cars. Human
1: beings need to be, we need to be recognized. We mm-hmm. need to be heard by yeah. the most important person in our life. So that means shut off the TV, and you, put your cell phone on airplane mode, make eye contact, how was your day? Yeah. Make an effort daily to do that for and actually care about the answer. Twenty minutes. You don't have to care, <laughs> but you got you gotta pretend you care. That's nice
0: if you do, but
1: yeah, that's a plus. It's great. But the other person doesn't really need you to do anything except just listen. So th- this is
0: especially helpful for the psychopaths we were talking about because...
1: Well, they learn how to pretend to have emotions over time. The yeah. last person you want to date is a psychopath or a, a sociopath.
0: Highly manipulative. It'll yeah. be
1: very unrewarding for you. There, so there's there are other... ways to avoid them. I mean, the yes. number one sign, I think, is the pity play. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, honey, I don't feel good today. Will you do my work for me? That kind of thing. Right. Oh, right. my cat died. I can't. Could you take care of this for me?
0: You said something when you were mentioning listening that I think is a really important lesson for relationships. And that was when you mentioned not wanting to fix things.
1: Yeah, shut up and
0: listen. That's something that I've learned because I tend to hear someone talking about something that's wrong in their lives and I take that as you want advice or should I tell you what to do? No, they don't. Nope.
1: Don't want your advice. It's just a consultation with no advice given.
0: Because there's sort of this implicit, if I'm giving you this advice, that means that you haven't somehow thought of this yet. And that's not that's not it. In the span of this 15-minute conversation, nope. I don't need to figure out why Carol at work is being a jerk to you. I just need to hear that, that that's happening and say, man, that's awful. I'm really sorry to hear it.
1: Yes. Just just give empathy. Yeah. You can withdraw into your brain and start replaying the, the game you want to watch or go wherever you want to, as long as you can maintain eye contact and nod your head for fifteen to twenty. Maybe minutes.
0: offer, you know, do you do you want me to talk to Carol? But or do you want me to
1: Well the next talk level to is to ask your partner when they bring something up that's troubling them, you can say, Do you want me to listen? Do you want advice? Yeah or do you just want Give lo- them the option. loving touch?
0: I, I like that because I, I don't think that ruins whatever comes after by asking
1: that's the next level of communicating with your partner because you have to ask for what you want yes people can't read minds
0: yes and solicit what the other person wants when they're not thinking to offer it
1: so 15 to 20 minutes
0: this is good advice
1: but if you're the feminine person on that side of the equation processing your emotions and having your partner listen don't overindulge more than 15 to 20 minutes hmm. per day. Interesting, Because the masculine brain person, what happens is, Dr. Gottman calls it, is flooding. The masculine brain can only handle talking about relationships for about 20 minutes before hmm. it overloads and can't take it anymore and gets frustrated and, and backs away. So- Fifteen to twenty minutes, maybe it's thirty some nights. Maybe you go a whole hour some once in a great while. Yeah. Sometimes maybe it's five minutes. As long as on the average is
0: okay. All right, that's a good thing for us to think about when we are wanting to unload on our partners to realize that there is a certain amount of uh, time.
1: If you overdo it, that precious resource is going to go away. That's why you want to to moderate.
0: And maybe one day it's them talking, maybe the next day it's you talking. Right. Well, one person's going to be
1: more of the talker than the other, and the other one's going to be more of the listener in that masculine-feminine linkage. Interesting. But there's another side to that coin, too. What the masculine needs more than the feminine is there's a different cycle that's happening where the feminine wants connection 24-7, and the masculine also wants connection, but once... I have connection, for instance, being a masculine, when I'm in my masculine needs, once I have connection, I yearn for freedom.
0: Interesting. And and so then I
1: need to orbit away. And once I have freedom, I miss her. And I orbit for, and I, and I yearn for connection again.
0: In its more extreme forms, that can be a relationship breaker, which is when, if you don't oh, understand someone's getting it. too close to me, I need to push them away.
1: Right. Both sides, if they don't understand what's going on, they think it's a problem in their relationship. But if you recognize what's happening, you can see it's, it's, it's normal. Yeah. And if you try to get in the way and stop that orbit, you're going to cause frustration, which leads to anger and conflict. And the way to facilitate disconnection. Yeah is to announce it. Honey, I am going to go and interview Roger for two hours. Mm-hmm. And when you announce the disconnection, at the same time, you announce when you're going to reconnect. Ah, yeah. And I can't wait to see you for dinner tonight at 7 p.m.
0: That's all much better than just storming off or leaving without mentioning exactly. anything. Or Then there's a no timetable. insecurity.
1: Yeah. The feminine partner is secure in when you're leaving and when you're coming back. But it's crucial that if you say 7 o'clock, you're home at seven uh, yeah, or you call. At it,
0: least to say, okay, I'm sorry, I'm really trying to get back, but yet. it turns out it's going to be eight. And
1: if you meant midnight... Say midnight mm-hmm. at the beginning. Take your lumps up front.
0: Honesty, that's another piece of all this. Uh, but, but I don't want to leave distance because I, I think that is another one of those secrets. Well, uh, John Gray
1: calls it going to the cave. Oh, really? Okay.
0: In Men Are From Mars. Yeah. Okay. Which, you know, I haven't read. I, I give that book a lot of flack for not having read it. But yeah, that's healthy. Like that you have identities that exist beyond the partner.
1: We all need space at some point.
0: And space. And uh, this is a question that came up when uh, I asked listeners for questions. And I thought to do this because I was re-listening to our interview with you and we had solicited questions at the time. W- one thing that had come up is that you know, not, not everybody feels that relation is for them, either at that point in their lives or maybe that's something that they don't aspire to. And there's kind of this external expectation that you have to want a relationship and that you do need someone else in your life. I don't know if you talk necessarily in the documentary about people who are asexual or, or aromantic, like who just don't have any of those feelings. But I did like one thing that kind of came up as a theme, and that was that you need to first be happy with yourself and who you are as a person and be comfortable with yourself so that your life isn't so dependent upon that other person. No,
1: nobody wants to rescue a disaster.
0: Yes. In progress. You're not this shaky foundation that's going to fall over me if something goes wrong with the relationship
1: become the person you want to attract Hmm, and you'll attract the type of people that are similar to you That's why if you're insane, you'll tend to attract insane people Hmm, if you're relatively stable and measured you'll attract someone who's closer on your level or Maybe will strive to meet you at your level
0: be the change you want to see in your relationship
1: status. Yeah, you know, there's all these self-help metaphors and aphorisms and but it comes down to we are social creatures yeah whether you're asexual or very sexual or somewhere in between as a social creature you need people we need people we don't exist in a vacuum some people need interaction less than others there's that bell curve right Mm -hmm. where do you fit on the bell curve some need to be really bonded to someone all the time and others need people in their lives but to a lesser extent so you need to find the person that soulmate right who matches <laughs> the degree that you need for social interaction, for emotional in- connection.
0: And, and so that could be very good friends in your life. That could be roommates in your life. That could be, you know, whatever it may be, as long as you're open and honest about that and you find someone who fits that groove. Well,
1: here's part of the problem that came up. Tai Toshiro told me this, uh, psychologist Tai Toshiro, that one of the issues for people is that in the old days on the African savanna, when we lived in a tribe, we got our needs met by everyone in the tribe yes. to different degrees. Yes. We didn't rely on one person to fulfill all our needs, which is sort of what we expect people to do now.
0: Right. We you want the soulmate. You find one person who meets all your sexual needs, but also gives you a sense of fun and fulfillment. You do all of your activities with that person. You raise kids with that person. You
1: can watch the game together. You like the same sports. You, you like com- the same food. You can
0: confide in them with all your deepest, darkest desires it's and impossible. secrets. It's impossible.
1: No one's going to fulfill
0: all your needs. That's a lot to ask of one person.
1: Yeah, it's it's unfair. Yeah. When you come to a realization that that's not going to happen, and both partners understand and are aware of that, you can still form a great bond with someone, a lifetime bond, a sexual, emotional bond, yet realize many of your needs are going to be met by others. Mm-hmm. One of the couples in my documentary are polyamorous. And right. And they agreed before they got married, they were going to continue dating other people after they got married. And they are a very high-functioning couple. They do really well. They're still together. They're very happy. They're, they love each other. And part of the reason that they do so well is not that they have sex with other people. It's because in order to be polyamorous, they had to be totally honest with each other about who they were. So they, there were no surprises for them, no assumptions. Yes. They knew who they were getting right from the beginning.
0: That's so key uh, because I, I think our, our normal social order has really made us hesitant to talk about those things in advance. And it would put people in relationships before they were ready for them. And then they got to clamor out of that hole and say, wait, are we compatible? Do, do you? I'm really into this kink. You're not? Oh, well— Shit.
1: The number one thing that the experts told me that someone can do, if, if, if someone is listening to this podcast who's thinking of getting married, yeah. who's engaged, Gary. Carrie, <laughs> the number one thing all the marriage therapists said yeah. that you can do that most people don't do. Let me back up a little bit. Religious couples tend to do better than non-religious couples hmm. in happiness and longevity in their relationships. Yeah, interesting. And it's not because they're religious, it's because they're forced to do premarital counseling. If you want to give your relationship a real chance to beat the 50% failure rate, mm-hmm. what you should do is premarital counseling. And all that means is meeting with somebody who is objective and helpful and can help you discuss what your expectations are for each other and for the future.
0: Bring up those questions that are awkward for us to ask each other.
1: Exactly. In, the, in my book, in the appendix, I made a quiz for people to take. Who are thinking of getting married. Oh, interesting. I got the idea from a divorce attorney that I interviewed named, yeah. named Lawrence Bloom. He said, he told me that when people are getting divorced, they obviously have to create a financial disclosure statement. Hmm. Prenuptial agreements also typically have those as well. Right. You should do that. On you the should, way in and on yeah, the way out. Both partners should create a financial disclosure which lists all your assets and your debts so you know because that
0: becomes a sticking point after well, a relationship. It becomes starts. yours.
1: Your partner's debts become yours.
0: And it can be a huge source of stress, especially if you don't know about it in advance or you don't openly communicate about it.
1: But that's just one item in the checklist. And so what I've written in the book Ah. is a personal priorities checklist so that you and your partner can get on the same page. What you should do is each person fills out this checklist Ranks, what's of a priority to you? What's more of a priority? Rank at one through 10, your spouse or your parents.
0: Interesting.
1: Now you got to decide because one is more important. You can't say all they're equal. Right. Nothing's equal. And here's how I can prove it. Let's say you get married and you have children. Okay. Well, you obviously have said when you got married, you're the most important thing to me. Now, who's more important, your spouse or your child? Ah. I can ask you this question. Yeah. If you had to choose one, Sophie's choice... (laughs) Who do you choose?
0: I would say for the first 10 years of our marriage, I would very easily just say, my wife. And now,
1: I'd, that's a good question. Who's easier to replace, a spouse or a child?
0: But now, now he's so developed. He's like a real person.
1: Yeah, well, let me put it to you this way. Okay. You've just invested X number of years, how many, 10, 15, 12, 12 years, yeah. in, in a person— People change spouses all the time. Mm. But you can't get a new child. This is uh,
0: flesh of my flesh. I mean
1: you can have another child, but it won't be the same child. Right. This child is fifty percent of your genetics. Huh. Whereas your spouse is no none of your genetics.
0: I feel like maybe there is a shift in there somewhere. So, you, even though they're they've both been incredibly important to me all along. Exactly. When you when you put it like that though, I feel like maybe there has been a shift.
1: So what happens when you get married and then you have a child, there's a shift in the power dynamic? In the power structure, it's a power struggle that happens. Mm. And you have to reevaluate and realign what you value more.
0: And before you have kids, that's hard to fully know exactly where your sentiments will be down the line. But that's a good thought experiment.
1: So that is one of the things you do in your personal priorities checklist is you rank your spouse versus hobbies, parents, friends, children from an earlier relationship Saving and are these, charity work
0: are these all things where you want to be largely in accordance, you want to be pretty close to each other?
1: What if you're not?
0: Right. That's a source of well, trouble. Okay, well, I was going to say, d- does that mean that if they're different, that's an opposites attract good thing, it's a balance, or does it mean you're incompatible and that these are going to be problem points?
1: What if you're really good at saving and your partner is a spendthrift who can't save a dime?
0: Okay, yeah, that sounds like where you want to be Trouble. Aligned. Yeah. It's going to be trouble. Absolutely. You have different values. You see the world in very different ways.
1: So that's the first part is to do a, p- a checklist. And the second part then is to fill out a questionnaire where you answer some questions. Like, what's your dream home? Where do you want to live? Ikea or antiques? What's the most mm. anyone should spend on a pair of shoes or a car? Mm-hmm. Is any kind of sex off limits? Mm-hmm. How often are we going to say, I love you? Is it better to get things out or to stay calm all the time? Yeah,
0: I thought you were going to say, how often are we going to have sex? Because uh, That too. Which just feels like such a strange thing to ask somebody. And, and again, it's something that changes over time, but... That's really important because if you have a big differential there, it's going to create strife.
1: This should be, it could be a very, just a fun activity that you can both do to share intimate ideas and yeah. thoughts with the goal of, for doing this is to create a new mutual priorities list that you're right. both in agreement on. I mean, you don't have to agree on everything, but you'll know, understand and agree where you both stand.
0: Right. And then when those things arise, instead of turning it into you did this and you're like this, at least you understand like, oh, well, I knew that about you. And okay, well, how do we work around this? Now it's a
1: solvable issue. Exactly. How many bank accounts should you have? One for each of you, one just for the relationship. What a lot of people do is here's my bank account. Here's your bank account. Mm -hmm. Here's the third bank account for the relationship. Yeah. And I'm going to put in 70 percent of my earnings. And you're going to put 30% of your earnings into that relationship bank account.
0: My dad and my stepmom are former math teachers, now retired, and they do that. They have his bank account, her bank account, shared account, fund for travel. It's, it's so much more organized than anybody else I've ever met. But it you know, works out beautifully. And then, you know oh, the car needs repair. Okay, well, I'll contribute 50% to that. <laughs> you contribute 50% to that. It's uh, pretty impressive.
1: You can avoid disasters like, where did all our money go? I bought a boat.
0: So what this does is this kind of quantifies the monumental icebergs that my wife and I just happened to avoid by chance (laughs) and luck, and I I guess just kind of growing closer to each other over time, being able to work through these issues. But I think that's why it's so rare. That getting married that young and out of pressure from your family and religious community
1: is usually not. You don't have to do any of this stuff. Only if you want to be happier and for your relationship to have a better chance to last longer. I'm just saying we didn't, so we lucked out. You're one of the lucky, yeah, on the 50% that made it so far. Yeah. 19 years, though, is not a lifetime. It's true. Give your wife some quality listening.
0: I bet her, yeah, because she's, (laughs) it's so funny. Uh, She has encoded so many of my memories. She knows more about my family than I I do. She knows all these. It's weird. I have a steel trap mind for certain types of information, but she has a steel trap mind for a different type of information. And it really does. You know, We balance each other so well. But I feel like if I didn't have her in my life, I would truly have lost a huge chunk of my personal memory, which is a really weird thought.
1: Well, a big part of a relationship is shared experiences. Mm -hmm. When you trade up, you break up to get somebody better. Mm. We all think we're getting somebody better, right? If you end a relationship to go with someone else, but you're just trading sideways, one set of problems for a new set of problems, and you're losing the entire history of shared experiences. Which
0: figures into that uh, secretary problem, where at a certain point, if you're evaluating people as potential mates, at some point, statistically, you have to make a decision. And you have to say, okay, I've been with X number of people, and you know whoever I meet next who meets my requirements, that's the person I go with.
1: Yeah, I covered that in my book because it's a fascinating concept. It's a statistical idea that if your goal is to get married yeah. and have children, that means you're going to spend the next X number of years looking for a partner. Let's say you start at age 20 mm-hmm. and make this goal. Now, you want to be married by age 40, so that gives you 20 years. Let's assume it takes a minimum of six months to evaluate if somebody is marriage material. Yeah. And that means over those 20 years, you have a maximum of 40 potential prospects that you can thoroughly examine to determine. That's a lot. Okay, so here we go. Now we know the number, right? Uh Uh-huh. 37%, right, is the percent that this gets right in any given situation, whether it's 40 Choices are forty million,
0: As assuming that you don't have the ability to go back and right get someone that you've already passed up.
1: Which dating you can't go backwards once it's you've. That's ended. true,
0: uh, Elaine. You know what? Turns out I dated five other people. I made a you mistake. Know what? Actually, you, you're all right. Yeah, it's just too late <laughs> let's som- get back together. Somebody
1: else got her by then. So what? Anyway, what the formula tells you is that the number of people that you need in your sample group is 14 out of 40 mm-hmm. to get to that 37% figure. So after you've dated 14 people significantly, anyone from the 15th on, you pick the best one who is as good as the best and, candidate and, in the prior form. And even
0: then it was something like your odds of picking the very best person in the whole set is still something like sixty two percent, but they're gonna be in the upper percentile either way, however you're calculating it. So it's
1: it's just a way to face reality because you can't go backwards in dating. So you wanna pick somebody who's as good as you can get. Right. And if you pick someone too early, you're going to feel like I settled too early and you're going to have that nagging worry that I got to keep looking, which is getting worse and worse as a psychological phenomenon because of all these dating apps where you can swipe left, swipe right. You you have like infinite choices.
0: You know, I do know people who successfully did meet on apps or dating websites, and I, I can think of examples of people who have gone back and dated someone previously. But again, we're talking about averages and what are kind of good strategies.
1: If you've dated 14 people, around 15, you're ready to settle, is what okay. this theory is saying. Okay. You've, you've got enough of a sample group to, to be able to gauge when somebody's a good catch.
0: So, so what has all this done then for your life?
1: I've, I'm vastly better prepared for okay. my next relationship. Okay. I'm a better listener. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm better now at understanding empathy. I don't think I even knew what that was before I started. Ladies, this guy's a catch. He's available. I've learned the best thing you can do in a fight, an argument, a conflict, is to say, what can I do to help you feel better? Oh, interesting. Okay. My masculine, logical mind wants to litigate. Well, you said, roll the tape back. I was right. You were wrong. That doesn't get you to happiness.
0: No, it does not.
1: If you want to get to happiness... The other person is hurting. You just have to recognize that person is hurting, needs to be heard.
0: Focus on the present and the future. I
1: am so sorry that happened. What can I do to help you feel better? Mm, mm -hmm. That's the quickest path back to happiness. I like it. I wish I had known that 10 years, 15, 20 years ago.
0: Yeah, and I hinted at earlier uh, one piece of advice that I really liked in your documentary. One of the experts you talked to was saying that you need to avoid, in, in those conflicts, you need to avoid... A uh, you phrases and focus on the I phrases
1: yeah never say you instead of saying you, you are a slob you always blank yeah you say I get anxious when the house is untidy mm-hmm. can you please help me with that Right. Well, you're going to be much more willing to step in and help me if I put it that way than if I say, you're such a slob, you're always a mess, you do this, you do that. You're you're now you're, I put you on the defensive.
0: Right. That's the basis of cognitive dissonance. Now you are tasked with disabusing me of the idea that you're a sloppy, lazy, <laughs> mean person. Well, I'm not those things, so let me prove to you that I'm not because I did this and remember when I did that?
1: Honey, I feel so sad when the garage is a mess. Hmm. Can you help me with with this I mean you're, you're ready to help me now right, right. you don't want me feeling and you don't want me have, having this pain
0: and there's an admission I think in that I'm not perfect and maybe this isn't the most rational way for me to feel but it's how I feel so let's let's figure out a solution together
1: also you should get rid of the word should ah. it's called shoulding all over somebody <laughs> I love it. You should know when I'm unhappy. You should know when I'm going to go to my mother's house on Sundays. You should know this. You should do that. Nobody should or knows anything. So you should not
0: use should. Eliminate that that. from your vocabulary. See, these are helpful things to just be mindful of. That's a
1: very simple rule that you can incorporate into your life. In the
0: heat of the moment, we don't think of these things.
1: You can change the trajectory of your relationship right now. Yeah. Radically. Radically. By being a better listener, announcing your disconnection and reconnection, substitute I for you, Mm -hmm. eliminate the word should. Mm -hmm. There's four things you can do easily right now. Why didn't they tell me this in high school?
0: Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. Just to get your thought on this, what do you feel about the concept of soulmate? What does that bring to your
1: mind? You become a soulmate to somebody over time. You find a good choice. And then you work together to become soulmates. And I think I kind of came
0: to that realization as I was talking to Carrie because I realized Kara was a a good match for me starting out. But now at this point, we've gone through so much together that really there's no one who could complete my level of happiness to that same degree. And I had that moment of like, oh, wow, I guess I have found my soulmate, You know, at least in the statistical, rational sense.
1: When people would say to me, When I was making The Nature of Existence, I want to find happiness. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? How do you find happiness? And one of the people I asked about that was Julia Sweeney. Ah, we love Julia. She said that you can't chase happiness. It's a false goal. It's a side effect of having a purpose in your life. Mm -hmm. So the real question is, what is my purpose? Find your purpose, begin pursuing your purpose, and you will be happy. It comes naturally. And one of your purposes in life is to connect with other human beings and to connect on a deep level with one special human being. And happiness is a byproduct. Of doing that.
0: Or three special human beings or four if you're polyamorous.
1: There is no limit to how much love you can have.
0: Or no special beings, but, but maybe in different ways.
1: It's, you, it's not, love is not a limited resource. Mm-hmm. If I am in love with you, it doesn't mean I can't love someone else as well.
0: I think that was a hard one for me to learn because I really was taught that love is a you and one other person for life kind of thing.
1: It's one love and maybe it's your greatest love.
0: Mm-hmm. But there's other aspects of your needs that are going to come through other people.
1: Realistically, yeah. I mean, who do you call when you want a good laugh? Who do you call when you want to talk about football? Who do you call when you want to commiserate? Yeah. Maybe it's your special partner or maybe it's three different people that serve each of those needs for you. And, and that's not going to be
0: easy and i don't think we should expect it to be you know the first one or the first try put it out there and and let people know exactly what you're looking for
1: ask for what you want
0: yeah and, and be kind i guess that the tricky thing is too is that you have to kind of do that over time as well because it doesn't work well in the first date to just dump all of that on somebody
1: no they have to earn the right yeah to hear that
0: so it becomes a it's a provisional thing where you kind of start well well i'm drawn to you for whatever reason I, I can't maybe fully explain that. Maybe it's the smell of your shirt or something. But now we start to peck away at those other little things and see just how well we match. You have a list of those things. That's super helpful.
1: I have reams and reams of thoughts and ideas and think. Uh, and you have
0: binders of women,
1: concepts I've learned. <laughs> and Mitt
0: Romney joke, sorry.
1: It's all in my book now, The Truth About Marriage. That's fantastic. And in the film, the film, I mean, the film is a comedy, mm-hmm. really. Number one. It's meant to make you laugh. It's meant to entertain. All my documentaries, my films. Suckers is a film about car salesmen. Yeah. And it's true about what they do and who they are, but it's meant to be a comedy. And the nature of existence, it's about existentialism, but life is absurd. The universe is an absurd joke.
0: Yeah. And once you're in on the joke,
1: then you can laugh and enjoy it and just go with it.
0: I was going to mention earlier, you made that really good point from Julia Sweeney about happiness. And uh, one of the best things I've heard on that is that you don't want to tie happiness to goals or like future outcomes or checklists. Like I will be happy when dot, dot, dot.
1: Happiness is a product of your daily activity, your choice of activities and the activity that you should choose to increase your happiness is to be creative in some way whatever way is important to you. And what can you do? You can write a poem. You can create a new dance. You can, if you're an architect, you design a new building. Maybe you create a new podcast or I make mm. a documentary. Take your pick, painting, plant a garden, bring yeah. forth life. What most people default to is creating a new small version of themselves that they hope will grow into be a better version. Mm. And then... 18 years later, or 20 or 25, depending on how long it takes to kick them out of the basement, Yeah, <laughs> you're back where you started going, what is my point in life? Yeah. Now you're taking up classes in pottery right. and painting or finding a way to express yourself creatively because that's where the maximum... Happiness comes from positive creation of something in some way, whether it's a new person or a painting. And then you offer these things to your social group and you get feedback
0: from people. I like that you have feedback from people who have been in relationships and show kind of different pathways that have worked for them, but also people who have worked with a lot of other people in relationships. I, I always think it's kind of silly that the Catholic Church will have people go to a priest for relationship advice someone who has been proscribed from having a relationship
1: um, but at least you're talking. It gets you talking.
0: That's true. They're presenting a certain collective insight about relationships and how they're supposed to work. But I, I always see that kind of surface level absurdity of, hey, let's go talk to someone who is not in a relationship about how a relationship should be. So what I like that you've done in the film and, and also in the book is uh, provide that collective wisdom because there's going to be little things that are going to lock on for, for some people more than other things.
1: You never learn enough. One thing that Dr. Gottman told me is that relationships naturally deteriorate over time. If you begin a relationship with someone, it will end unless you put conscious intention into it. Mm. That is the natural formula. Mm
0: -hmm. That's entropy.
1: Of relationship entropy.
0: Yeah. Oh, that makes a lot of sense.
1: You have to work on your relationship, you have to put energy into it, you have to listen, you have to maybe do therapy, you have to help your partner you got to do the hard work or it's going to end. And then people end up thinking, boy, what happened? I want to recapture that magic we had at the beginning. And so they go through one relationship after another, Mm -hmm. trying to recapture that initial excitement. Because it's easy at the beginning. And it's fireworks. Yeah. We're designed to be passionate for the first three years. But then passion changes into compassion Mm -hmm. for
0: raising children. And you need to make sure that those base compatibilities are there to survive that initial. To help you surge make the transition
1: from one phase of a relationship to another.
0: Was there anybody that you really wish you could have uh, talked to that you didn't get to, or you think would be another interesting kind of sample or viewport into this discussion?
1: Dozens. There were so many great relationship researchers, like David Buss mm-hmm. is one of them, who's done amazing research on relationship dynamics. I emailed everybody that I read and those that responded, Esther Perel, I would have loved to interview, Hmm. but they didn't respond sometimes. The Gottmans also didn't respond. And I just decided at one point I wasn't going to take no for an answer. I had to get the Gottmans. Because the more psychologists I talked to, I realized they were all referring to John Gottman's research. If you go into therapy, they're going to use John Gottman's research to help you in your relationship. So I thought, okay, this is the one I can't take a no for it. So I called and called and emailed, nothing, no response. Finally, I got their publicist on the phone, Katie, and Katie said to me, you know, they just don't do interviews. They only huh. come into the Institute once a month, oh. and it's just not something they do. It's not possible. Can't be done. And I said, but I'm a, I'm a documentary filmmaker. Just they're the oracles. Everyone uses their research. Yeah. I made, I made a film about Star Trek fans, for instance, and she said, oh, stop. Huh? John loves Star Trek. Whew. That was my in. Okay. She said, okay, write a letter. And I saw I laid it on thick. Yeah. Trekkies, Trekkies, Trekkies. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so they agreed to an interview. And so I only had them, though, for like 30 minutes, although they stretched it to 45 or 50. Okay. Once you get them in the chair, it's hard to get them to stop talking. Sure, (laughs) sure. But yeah, there were many I would have loved to have talked to. Eventually, you just have to to finish the film. Mm Mm-hmm. I could go on forever.
0: Got to release it and it can't be too long. Or you have to release a companion set with all of the additional
1: interviews. Yeah, or I'm going to die with it unfinished.
0: (laughs) Hello, everybody. This is Ross again, interrupting this interview with Roger and myself. I hope you are enjoying it. But we just got a couple jumbotrons. Let me open this one up. Hmm, What does it say? Do you wish Mulder and Scully had spent more time discussing local pizza joints in bottle episodes of the X-Files? Do you love true crime, but also dorks who have memorized the NBC must-see TV lineups from 1994 to 1996? Yes? Then there's a show for you, Reenacted, an Unsolved Mysteries podcast. Every two weeks, longtime buds Robbie and Crystal discuss a classic episode of Unsolved Mysteries in the most unprofessional way possible. Magic Fucking Rock is a good entry point to their brand of nonsense. There's an asterisk there in place of the U, just in case you're trying to do like a text search or something. But you can find Reenacted, an Unsolved Mysteries podcast, on iTunes and other podcatchers. And looks like we have a second Jumbotron. Let me open this one up. Oh it's another podcast. The Going Upcast is a weekly feel-good podcast designed to make you happy. Join host Andrew Logan as he brings a fresh spin to literature's greatest hits with ad-libbed comedic narration. Brighten your world with a creative audio experience with discussions of modern entertainment and tales of travel around the great Pacific Northwest new podcast episodes every Tuesday, and new audiobook chapters every day. Listen now at goingupcast.com or subscribe on iTunes at The Going Up Cast. And while we're here, I'll add that Carrie has been selling items on her Etsy store. So if you go to Oh No Carrie, you can find right now a tincture tank top that says as strong or stronger and has a curling bicep with a little dropper bottle on the bicep. Little reference to our ayahuasca episodes. So you can buy those at the Ono oh Carry Etsy store to support Carrie, but also 20% of profits on the tank go to International Work Group for Indigenous Affairs. Carrie figured that was the right group to support given Jerry's whole thing down in Costa Rica. And with that, we go back to some listener questions with Roger Nygaard. Well, um, if I may, let me pepper you with a bunch of listener questions. Okay. People ask a lot of questions.
1: For some reason, people are interested in relationships. Yeah, what is that?
0: Uh, Rebecca asks, why do shows and movies not portray relationships accurately? What I saw of marriage growing up is way different than what marriage actually is.
1: If you were watching a TV show... And in that entertaining TV show, they washed the dishes. Mm-hmm. And that was all they did. You would switch the channel. You're saying life is boring? It's hard work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and relationships are hard work. What TV shows and movies are selling is the romanticized idea of all the good parts of a relationship.
0: You were talking about kind of that early initial the excitement and yeah, yeah. hormone-driven excitement. That's what's in the movies. It's always that pursuit. And then it ends as they get married. And then no one wants to hear about anything afterward.
1: Storytelling is about conflict. If
0: yeah. you don't
1: have conflict, you don't have a story. Right. And all your TV shows have strong conflicts. You're good TV shows and movies. The best relationships are going to be long-term with long stretches of boredom, <laughs> with occasional conflicts— Fireworks at the beginning, but that doesn't make necessarily for a good TV show.
0: That's why it's so hard to make a good sequel is because you always ended on your resolution and now you have to find a new conflict (laughs) right? without destroying the resolution that you made before because then it just feels like the Sisyphean effort to get back to where you began. Can't do that either. Okay, uh, Rebecca also asks, why is jealousy such a big thing?
1: Mate guarding. We are trying to prevent our partners from raising someone else's genetic offspring. Jealousy is a way of enforcing that. Jealousy was unnecessary on the African savanna, living in a small tribe where everybody shared everything. Mm-hmm. It's a much more modern version of... Of anger.
0: Uh, interesting. Uh, Taylor asks about how modern couples are handling finances. We talked about that a bit, but that often becomes such a, a contentious issue. So I think you kind of answered that, and that you have to early on.
1: Three bank accounts.
0: Okay. And, and
1: you a- decide what percentage each of you are going to place in that bank account depending on your careers. What's fair?
0: Unless you're in a situation where one person says, hey, I love handling this. And, you know, the other person is happy to let them do it. You know, as long as you communicate about it.
1: Yeah. Well, that's an outgrowth of modern society where everybody has a career. Yeah. If you give up your career to stay home and, and raise the children, that then changes that dynamic. your partner is going to put 100%. Mm-hmm during that period of time.
0: And then you you figure out how to balance that in such a way that recognizes the the value of the stay-at-home partner.
1: Which is va- extremely valuable. It's equally valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Did you talk to anyone at all
0: about uh, relationships involving different faiths, people who kind of have different worldviews?
1: Well, it's one of the things that you have to discuss in your premarital personal priorities disclosure. Yeah. How are you going to raise the children? What are you going to teach the children? Which religious holidays are we going to celebrate? If you're on different tracks, it could be a problem, right?
0: Right. It's going to bleed into a few different areas. I remember in the Christianity of my upbringing, we would talk about this one verse that said, you know, do not be unequally yoked. And the idea was, you know, that as a Christian, you should not date or marry especially someone who is not part of your faith because it's just gonna create all these horrible incompatibilities
1: it goes to core issues what you're getting at by going through the process of the personal priorities disclosure is to get at each other's core issues Mm -hmm. you can be married to someone who you disagree with on many things but if your core values are not in sync it will be very difficult
0: So why do that to yourself?
1: Well, people, sometimes they they jump right into something because the chemicals are strong, right from the beginning. They're a strong chemical match. And Mother Nature wants you to reproduce and switch partners every three years. It's called the seven-year itch, but there's a three-year itch also. Interesting. Because a three-year-old child is now able to walk on its own and follow the tribe and keep up. Huh. And it's better to have genetic diversity. Okay. Otherwise, you have inbreeding. Yeah, yeah. Mother Nature does not want inbreeding. Monogamy sort of selects toward inbreeding. So we have to— Depends
0: on the size of the population group. But yeah, starting out small, that's well, interesting. Well, we
1: have instincts and desires that are built into us to avoid that. I mean, we have a natural disinclination mm-hmm. for having sex with someone who's genetically closely related to us, mm-hmm. but not too distant.
0: That's funny. You used Darwin as an example in the film, and he had a, a pros and cons checklist— that he made of, you know, the advantages of getting married or remaining a bachelor. As you were mentioning that, I was thinking. And he married his cousin.
1: Isn't that weird and fa- funny and bizarre? And, but they had a brood of, what was it, like 14 children? A lot of kids. But I think I th- three of them died young. Yeah. And so is that because they were closely related genetically? Possibly. Well, that last question was from Steven.
0: Sonny asks, I would be curious to know how you feel about egalitarian relationships where gender roles are sacrificed in favor of acknowledging basic life skills and shared responsibility. Is there something wrong with sharing burdens rather than expecting people in a relationship to take on burdens based on social constructs?
1: I asked people, who is the boss mm-hmm. in most relationships, <laughs> yeah. the man or the woman? And it was unanimous, virtually unanimous. Everyone
0: was saying the woman. Yes. And, and then you hear all those standard jokes of, oh, I'm the head of the house and she's the neck. She turns the head any way she wants.
1: Something's going on. Okay. If everyone essentially agrees that the woman is the boss or the boss of the boss, has the final veto in any important situation. Okay. There's a reason for that. So egalitarian isn't really a factor i mean we're equals human beings are equals but we have different domains
0: but but let's say let's say a a man decides to stay home and be the caretaker of the children whereas the woman is out in the workforce bringing home the bacon
1: one way to look at this is through the masculine and feminine collectives of personality traits okay i have both but i have more of one than the other my partner's gotta have the opposite match of me Mm. for an ideal relationship and I feel like, as a masculine person, I am what I do. My occupation is who I am.
0: So you need to find someone who's okay with that.
1: And who, for them, being the stay-at-home or being the one primarily involved with child care, child Mm -hmm. rearing, works for them. That's the best situation for me. For you. But
0: in our hypothetical man who wants to stay home and do most of the child rearing work. That's
1: the feminine. He, but there's nothing wrong with it, with being needs, the feminine he person. He needs to make
0: sure that he finds someone who has a compatible life goal for him.
1: Uh, maybe a hard charging female CEO.
0: He finds the go getter. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I mean,
1: that's just there's all kinds out there and there's there's nothing insulting with being one or the other.
0: As long as you're finding that all the important areas of life are being met by the two of you together, then mazel tov.
1: We all want to reach the maximum happiness in our union with somebody. Yeah. And if we're, not, if we're mismatched, there's going to be areas of friction and more difficulty than if we're matched well. What happens is that we also want to be passionate. Mm -hmm. In order to be passionate, what happens when people lose their passion, another thing I ask people in the documentary is, how many times do you have sex per week? What's the normal number of times? Yeah. And it turns out about once or twice— for married couples per week is the norm. And that makes sense because that's how long, what it would take to keep yeah. someone inseminated enough to have a baby over time because sperm lives four to five days inside a woman's body.
0: Would the, the man and the woman usually agree on how often they were having sex?
1: Yeah, generally, if they're well-matched. Okay. But then I would ask them, how, how often did you have sex when you were first dating? And it was usually two, three, four, five times a day mm-hmm. when they're starting out. Yes. The passion is intense. But that subsides over time because you you can, our bodies can't withstand that level of excitement for long periods. We're not designed to have that kind of stress. It's good stress, but Uh it's still stress. But we still want to recapture that sometimes. Sometimes this frequency has dropped to less than once a week. Maybe it's once a month. I, or once a year yeah. for some couples. and some, As long
0: as they're compatible on it.
1: There are passion experts. In fact, I witnessed a passion seminar. It's in the book. I wrote a whole chapter in the book about it. It didn't make the documentary. Okay. When couples want to rekindle their passion, yeah. these experts can get them back to fucking within two or three hours. These are good experts. It, well, it was pretty simple what they did. And they, what they did is they rekindled the masculine and feminine polarity that the couple had retreated from. They became similar over time. You know, when couples are together a long time, they become the same.
0: Ah, oh, that's interesting. That actually that was a, a question that Christine had asked about what happens when you start unintentionally mirroring and becoming like the other person. So uh, it's called
1: habituation. Yeah. You take someone for granted over time. And so this passion seminar, Satyan Raja, Satyan and Suzanne Raja run these passion seminars. And what they do is they split the men and women apart. And they reteach them how to be masculine and feminine and then they bring them back together again and they can't wait to get out of there and get back to their cars or their hotel <laughs> rooms or home wow sounds like a good seminar it's natural the spark comes naturally yeah. when you retreat or you don't, when you, when you recapture the polarity that you had lost this is so funny because i can
0: actually apply data to this at least for my relationship because i can't remember what what it was that sparked it but i don't know about three and a half years ago we were having a conversation like this where my wife and i were sort of comparing our relative ideas of how often we had sex realizing oh that's Kind of hard to guess at, and so I started keeping records as I do with everything in my life. I love to track data, so every time we have sex, I put an entry in my calendar. And I hadn't ever looked at it and tried to pull any numbers until I rewatched the documentary right before we had this interview. Wow! And so I thought, well, let's go back, and I'm curious now. What is the rate? Because I would have said it was about once every four days, and Kara would agree with that too. And it turns out. Uh, Very consistently over the past three years, it's been at once every four point five days.
1: That's how long it takes. Sperm needs to be replenished because it dies at day five. The sperm dies. So
0: I just fell right into a biological statistic.
1: You're you're programmed. I love it. You're set up to be any more than that is a waste of energy. (laughs) That's amazing. An activity when, that you could spend hunting for food.
0: But I've been collecting data for all this time since 2016, and I hadn't used it yet. <laughs> wow! So there you go. Thank you for uh, <laughs> giving me a reason.
1: Well, I sat in on this seminar, and it was fascinating. If you if you want to read about, there's a whole chapter in the book that describes exactly what happens. But I'd suggest you take the class too, okay. because there's nothing like doing it. At the end of the class, I was ready to fuck anybody, <laughs> and I was there by myself. You know, so it was a weird, it was a bizarre scenario to be so amorous after. <laughs> watching this seminar. I can boost
0: our numbers. I like it.
1: (laughs) It's human beings are programmed. We have algorithms that our brain runs naturally that have evolved within us. And if you can tap into them, you can improve your life or you can make it worse by, uh, by ignoring it. Better living through science. Truly. I love it. Only if you want to have better and more sex after, you know, if you're into year three, four, five and beyond.
0: Okay. So the next question from Jeremy asks about just the continued redefinition of marriage and relationships. What do you think about developing trends of people having things like uh, sex robots and virtual partners, people that they only know online? How, how does that figure in?
1: It's that thing where you need, it's where you get your needs met and you probably need several people to, need, to meet all your needs. Mm-hmm. One person can't in most cases meet every single need you have so we look outward to our friends and and people have they cheat on their partners mm-hmm. we're going to we have these compulsions that are built in that will get stronger and stronger if they're not met in mm-hmm. some way so a guy with a sex robot we've got needs right mm-hmm. and he's not getting them met and this robot is going to meet them in some way but as a human you, we still need human interaction So I'm a little bit skeptical of a robot being Mm. able to satisfy all your needs. Yeah. It might be— One piece of it. —a Band-Aid, but it's not going to give you the full meal that you need, the full nourishment that you need as a human being.
0: Gotcha. He also mentioned polyarrangements, et cetera, you know, that the nature of marriage is—
1: Polyamory, as one of the people in the documentary says, is that desire to get back to tribe. Mm-hmm. It's one way that you can do it in modern society. That's interesting.
0: Yeah. Again, as long as everybody is informed. Oh, you mentioned cheating earlier. You know, cheating requires doing something on the sly, being dishonest about it. And we talked about communication. As long as you're able to talk about your needs, maybe you can get there without, if you're with, without if you're, having to lie.
1: If you're with the right partner, there will be no need to cheat. Right. Because that means you know each other so well that you don't need to keep anything from each other.
0: And if sex with someone else is part of your needs, well, then that's something that you're going to be honest about.
1: Well, it's a part of the human need. For most people, strict monogamy isn't what we do. What most people practice is serial monogamy, Mm -hmm. which is essentially polygamy, except you can't keep the old one when you get the new one what is going on is it's this need for genetic diversity. Yeah. If I'm going to choose one person to be with for the rest of my life, I'm going to do that knowing that I'm a human being and I'm going to have a need for genetic diversity that's going to come up in three years. So how do we address that? Right. Well, there's lots of ways. Role-playing is one way to still to be monogamous and yet still meet these needs that are built into us. Yeah, Instead okay. of trying to suppress what you are, Acknowledge it, and deal with it in a way that's healthy and acceptable to both parties.
0: I like it. You had one lesbian couple in the film. Did you find in in your various research any kind of different dynamics in all of this with gay couples?
1: I started to go down the path of doing the gay couples chapter in the documentary, and then I realized it has nothing to do with gay, straight, or otherwise. That all of these principles. It has more apply to do with masculine, way. feminine. Hmm. Even in a gay couple, one is the masculine and one is the feminine energy. Interesting. Whether it's lesbian or gays, that's the formula for success in a human couple. Although, one of the ideas I have, if you're going to get to that question, what's next, is I would love to do The Truth About Gay Marriage as a follow-up. Ah. Because it really deserves its own documentary in how it's evolving and what it's becoming and how we're dealing with it in our current culture. Okay,
0: so there is more to tap there.
1: I started down that path, and those are the two reasons that I didn't go f- deeper. It just, I just realized this deserves its own yeah. entire film.
0: Yeah, but that also underscores that uh, these masculine and feminine categories that we're talking about don't necessarily map, and certainly not one-to-one or evenly, onto men and women all the time. Maureen asks, I still see a lot of media with the message that relationships are vital and will solve all your problems. There are very rarely any TV shows or movies in which someone resolves their issues independently. It's usually contingent on a romance of some kind. This just seems uh, so antiquated to me. Where does this come from, and why is there still such a demand in our society for this type of messaging?
1: Yeah, it's so wrong. Nobody can fix you. You have to fix yourself. <laughs> Nobody can make you happy. Yeah. You've got to bring happiness to the to yourself, to your relationship. Yeah. And then you can share your happiness, and, and someone can enhance your happiness. But finding the person to fix you is another fantasy that's mm-hmm. not based in what happens in reality.
0: And I, I think that's the same with children, too. We can't rely on our children to give us happiness, either.
1: In The Nature of Existence, mm-hmm. I asked Dan Gilbert, who wrote the book Stumbling on Happiness does having children make us happier? Mm. He said, he, they did the study where they found 50 couples with children and 50 couples without, and they had them rank every day, each hour, how happy they were on a 1 to 10 hmm. and what the activity okay. was that they were doing. Yeah, yeah. And they found that people with children were slightly less happy on average uh-huh. than those without oh, children. Right. I remember that, yeah. And that's because... Having children is hard work. (laughs) You've got this demanding little parasite that wants, (laughs) wants, wants, give me, and it doesn't want to listen, doesn't want to follow instruction, is rebellious, keeps you awake at night, costs a lot of money, you get less vacations, just a lot of stress and difficulty. People without children, they're taking their vacations, they get a good night's sleep. That's
0: why the more education and the more affluence you
1: have in society, the fewer children people have on average. And maybe the more nannies you have. But there's a counterpoint to this. What they also found is there is something that happens for the people that have children. There Mm -hmm. are those rare moments— when your child comes running and says, Daddy, I love
0: you. And that covers up for a whole lot of shit. Your happiness Literal shoots through the sometimes. stratosphere yeah.
1: in that moment in a way that someone without children is not experiencing.
0: Ah, so the peaks.
1: Greater happiness peaks Yeah, okay. for the, those with children. But the
0: average may be a little lower.
1: The What they found is that the way that parents ranked interacting with children was about equal with doing Housework. Okay. <laughs> That's lot. Vacuuming and interacting with children was wow. about the same amount of pleasure.
0: Well, we're all thankful to our parents for putting up with us as parasites.
1: But you get those great moments of joy as a result. I mean, you can... Is that true? is that was that your experience?
0: Absolutely. And you know, my son's he, he's been a good person all along. you know, I can't complain. so so yeah, it's it's been a net positive with very few situations th- that I could even point to and say like, oh, that was miserable. I'm so glad I made it through that. So yeah, he's been a delight.
1: Whichever category you're in, there's no sense beating yourself up for not being in the other category. right. Yeah, so because the, the lesson was both are equally happy.
0: That's a good lesson. I like it.
1: People ask me, you know, because I'm single and I made a film about, about marriage, why aren't you married, or do you ever th- plan to get married? And I could see myself married, mm-hmm. or not married? I don't know, but either way, I'm going to make the most of my life.
0: And your happiness isn't waiting for one outcome or the other.
1: One pr- I'm not expecting somebody to make my life happy. Yeah, I am good. living my life to its fullest. And I am looking for a, a person to share that with. Nice. Because the moral of the story is life is better shared. The sunset is better. Oh, oh he gave it away. Uh-oh, that's the conclusion. I have no problem telling you <laughs> the truth yeah. of the matter. What I learned from this yeah, is Yeah, life that is better shared. Life is better shared, even though it's hard. Mm-hmm. Even, even
0: so would you say it's better to have loved and lost than to not have loved at all? Absolutely. Here we go.
1: Even if you're suffering in a relationship- it's great because you're having a relationship, because mm, mm-hmm. you're living, you're experiencing life, you're experiencing the hard and the good stuff and the bad stuff. So that makes it worth all that effort, which is required. That's part of it. Complaining about things not being happy all the time is misunderstanding what life is.
0: Yeah. And that, that was uh, the next question from Emily. Is, is fighting something that's necessary in healthy relationships?
1: Conflict is a challenge to improve. It's natural. It's going to happen. And what the relationship counselors teach is how to do conflict. There are better ways to do conflict. Mm-hmm. For example, yeah, one way you make an appointment to fight. Hon- okay, honey, I need to talk to you about the garage. When is a good time <laughs> for you to do that? And if he says, ah, not now, then you okay. say, well, how about tomorrow? Is there a time tomorrow that's convenient? Okay, uh, tomorrow morning. At what time? Ten a.m. Okay, fine.
0: And if he keeps pushing it,
1: well, if then we he, have a different problem. If yeah, if he, if he won't talk, then you're not in a relationship. Yeah, but if you make an appointment, you write it down on a piece of paper. Now it's real. It exists. It's not in memory. It's oh, I forgot. It's it's here. It's an appointment. Plus, what happens is. The masculine brain now has time to get ready for it.
0: That's really important, too, because then you're not blindsided by someone who's been preparing this conversation, running it through their mind, back and forth, both roles, for, you know, the past day because it's been eating up at them. And all of a sudden now it's unleashed upon you. Quick, respond. Yeah. At least... That appointment thing gives you a little bit of time to sort of mentally prepare yourself and have the other side of that conversation.
1: I am really bad with ambush
0: discussions. Yes. Also, another piece of that is that putting that bit forward in time gives you a little bit of a chance to calm down a little bit and get off of that emotional peak. And maybe choose out of all those little conversation jabs that you had, maybe the more productive ones.
1: That's the first step is to make an appointment. The second step is to agree you're going to talk for 30 minutes only. And each one is going to have 15 minutes to express how they feel uninterrupted. Okay. And then you're done. You can set a new appointment to continue talking another time if you need more. Oh, I like this. But it's probably enough. If you're arguing about something longer than that, it's not about the garage. There's something (laughs) else going on. Right.
0: I love it. That's great. And
1: there's no switching topics. No kitchen sinking. A separate appointment for each topic. And this is because the logical masculine brain compartmentalizes and needs to do things one at a time. The feminine brain is really superior in many ways in that it's designed to be able to interact emotionally and on many subjects and engage at many many different things at once. Mm. But that overwhelms and leads to flooding on the masculine brain, which leads to an argument, a blow-up, and it's no longer about what you're talking
0: about. And now you're invoking all of these other pieces and connections that yes. are really hard to hold all in your mind. And you know it feels wrong, but you can't say why, and everyone gets
1: frustrated. If you want a successful outcome where you're both getting back to happiness faster, make an appointment, time limit, and no interrupting. Okay. See how much better prepared I am for the future now?
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is All of this would have been good to know in advance.
1: Why didn't they teach me this? <laughs> yeah, you're
0: right. You know, how long would it take to cover this in school?
1: Well, yeah, one class. At a weekend. Yeah. A couple days. Yeah. Absolutely. And home ec, just a part of home ec.
0: We need to keep a list of all these things we need to add to basic school curriculum, like, you know, social responsibility, comparative religion,
1: how like, to negotiate your car, best car deal,
0: critical thinking. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> critical thinking, especially for navigating marketing, advertising, sales pitches. You know, people need to know how to handle that. And yeah, relationship advice. That was super smart.
1: This is like a deposition, but it's fun. Oh, good.
0: Okay, good. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate your willingness.
1: If Carrie was here, we, we would have never finished. Oh, absolutely. It's, <laughs> it's so fun because
0: Carrie is so good at throwing bombs into a conversation, like <laughs> really funny, unexpected bombs. She's
1: hilarious. Yeah. In
0: my mind, I've sort of planned out whatever the next track of a conversation will be. It is like an improv exercise because she throws in some other weird thing and you have to do the, oh, okay, we're doing that now, you know, and I love it. <laughs> Kirk has an interesting question about social expectations and how we move towards more relaxed social expectations. I'm totally paraphrasing the question here, but the idea is that, you know, so much of conflict and and stress comes from the outside and what they expect of our relationships. How do you ease up on that, especially if we don't fit the mold of these nice bell curves in the traditional relationships?
1: Well, this is one of the nice ways of saying it's really not your fault, because a big part of relationship difficulties is because of our society, our culture. Mm-hmm. One of the people I interviewed was a social psychologist who studies the sociology of relationships, and what he discovered is that there are more divorces in environments that do not support relationships, that make it harder to live when it's easier to live, it's easier to be in a relationship. Hmm. Mm-hmm. For example, if you've got a support system like social security, yes, it makes it easier to be in a relationship when there is a way to support relationships.
0: Because then you're not tying your Maslow's hierarchy of needs into the relationship and its success.
1: So, if you want to have a better chance at a relationship, one way is to move to Iceland, where okay, yeah, there there was a study they did in Iceland. They passed a law. That required companies to give men maternity time as well as women. Yes. And so they could look at the time before the law and after the law. And divorces went down after the law was passed. Amazing. So there are ways that a society can encourage people to stay together by that's making fantastic. it easier to be a family unit.
0: I love those kind of things. And and ideally that's what the United States should be so good at because we have that state system where we can try different things and sort of compare numbers.
1: Yeah, well, if we were truly interested in being a family-oriented society, we would make it easier to be a family. Yeah. And that would that requires acceptance of people and their behaviors.
0: Th- this reminds me of uh, there was that study that looked at children with gay parents and uh, their outcomes. And it turned out the only negative outcomes were those imposed by the negative expectations and opinions of people outside of the family, it, which, like you said, is not your fault. There's nothing you can do about that. So it's society that needs to change, not that family.
1: It's one way to increase the longevity of relationships and the happiness level is by changing The social rules. And we do that through changing laws.
0: And so I guess one thing that we can all do, at least in our personal lives, aside from voting, is to check ourselves when we're imposing expectations on others to sort of question that and say, oh, maybe I need to stop putting my version of happiness on this person. One example I think of is uh, my mom. She loves Ellen. She'll watch the Ellen show. My mom will say, oh, you know, she seems so nice, but I feel like she'd be really happy if she were with a man. And I keep trying to tell her, no, mom, you are happy with the thought of being with a man. Not her. Look how happy she is. How can you be more happy than Ellen? She's doing great. You know, she's got a successful show. Things are going well. Just be happy for her.
1: Yeah, she's projecting herself herself onto Ellen instead of empathizing with Ellen and feeling like what it would be like to be in Ellen's shoes. Right. That's hard to do. And that's what we need to do in order to understand our fellow citizens.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To play that thought experiment and get outside of our own heads. I have an anonymous question asking, would you consider marriage to be joining into the other person's family? I'm trying to reconcile wanting to get married with wanting as little as possible to do with my boyfriend's racist, homophobic family.
1: Yeah, well, you are definitely acquiring his family if you marry him. That's what happens. Mm. Now, is he going to be okay with banishing his family? If he is, if you're both on the same page, Mm. then you can make it work. That's, once again, talking about core issues and expectations for the future.
0: So you just got to lay that out on the line. Yeah. Like, hey, I'm not comfortable with a future where your family plays an active role in our life. Are you comfortable with estranging yourself from them?
1: Ask for what you want. Yeah. That's the only way you'll get it.
0: Okay. Well, you make it sound so uh, approachable.
1: It's that simple, but it's very hard to do. Yeah. Because we're afraid of the answer. What if it's no, I'm not willing to separate from my family.
0: Now we've got to make changes that I would love to put off if, if I do have to make them. It's
1: easier to live in a fantasy version of the future instead of evaluating the reality of where the future will go with this person. But you've got to do the hard work if you want to have a better chance at success. Otherwise, you're going to be one of the 50% possibly yeah. that don't make it. And going through a divorce is a very painful, difficult, expensive process.
0: Also thanks to society. Yeah. Maybe something else we can fix.
1: It's easier to do the hard work up front. Yeah. That hard work up front is much less hard than the work you're going to have to do at the end, splitting up your finances or children or mm-hmm. houses or whatever problems you have to deal with in order to separate.
0: So before we fix all those problems, uh, save yourself
1: some trouble. Doesn't that seem more reasonable? It does. As hard as it might be to ask the question, it really does. are you okay with me avoiding your family because I don't like their racism? Right or whatever it is you don't like about them. And maybe you have the wrong idea about them too. Maybe he can say, well, let me, give me a, give them a chance. Mm-hmm. Let's go home for a weekend or yes. for a week. Give me a week. To really meet them. Let
0: me talk to them and, and see if we Get can to find... Get to know like each a, other. Yeah. Well, whatever it is, now you're involving the other person in that problem and you can find a solution together.
1: You give it a fair shot.
0: And maybe they're at least aware when you're all together, this is the moment to step in and say, hey mom, uh, that makes me uncomfortable. You know, like you can help run a little bit of interference and say, I, I really don't like you talking that way and appreciate it if you want it. Then you're doing a solid for your partner too.
1: And you'll find out if they're not going to be willing to do that. Better you know it and, and, yeah. and, and agree that you're taking that project on.
0: Maybe it's not a big deal. Maybe it's a big deal.
1: Or cut it loose early.
0: Yeah. Well, this has been really enlightening. I really appreciate you collecting all of this information, making it available in a very entertaining, very fun documentary, and also a companion book, which I'm excited about.
1: And a very special issue of Ono oh No! This Week with Roger and Ross and Carrie... In yeah. spirit. Yeah. Thank you so much for, uh, for sharing all of this. You're welcome. And if anybody's interested, please check out my documentary, The Truth About Marriage. At? TheTruthAboutMarriage.com. The- we'll have links for Amazon for the book and the documentary. Oh,
0: it's streaming all over the place. Yeah. You can rent or buy it on YouTube, Google
1: Play, Vudu,
0: Amazon. Go to
1: Vimeo On Demand. I have a page there with all my films. Yeah. You can see Suckers and The Nature of Existence and The Truth About Marriage, and Six Days in Roswell. You can stream them all or go get the Blu-ray, whatever you like. Fantastic. Uh, Well, thanks again, Roger. My pleasure. Well, let's do this again in nine more years. I love it. Well, that's it
0: for our show. Our theme music is by Brian Keith Dalton. Our administrative manager is Ian Kramer. You can support us at MaximumFun.org slash donate. Uh, You can also support us by leaving us a positive review on iTunes or Stitcher or Overcast or whatever your podcast is catcher of choice is. Also, you can tell a friend. Uh, Pass the word along. Let them know that Oh No, Ross and Carrie is your favorite podcast.
1: And remember, you are responsible for your own happiness. It's like, guess who's coming to dinner meets cruising? And if it helps seal the deal, I can flex my muscles while we record each episode. I'm sorry, this is a
0: podcast?
1: I'm a movie producer. How did you get in here? Iffy, quick, start flexing. Bicep,
0: lats, chest.
1: Who shot you? Dropping every Friday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.